Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2024. I am one of your hosts, Phyllis Gove. I am your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your regular host, Lil Stevie, the uh, of the evangelist child. Of, uh, <laughs> it would be so great if you hosted this show with like a 12-year-old Christian Steve. preacher. Sure, <laughs> who sure. didn't know anything about movies. It was uh-huh. just like here to talk about God, which you do normally. I'm here this week because Lil Stevie can make all it. The time. All the time. I talk about his religion He's on this podcast. He's a clone of Steve Martin. Uh, with us today is Griffin Newman. Hello. He is back Hi. to talk about Steve Martin's, uh, Steve Martin's, Steve Martin in Leap of yes. Faith. Uh, a, uh, kind of a movie that doesn't really exist. I I would agree. <laughs> and I even think, like, in theory, the fact that this was adapted into a failed Broadway musical yes. should <laughs> make it exist more. And even though that didn't work, the fact that it was like, that this movie was revived and like retrofitted into a new format. And somehow I feel like the Broadway show exists more than the movie does. We keep running into shows, movies Mm -hmm. in 1992 that got turned into Broadway musicals that flopped and both the movie and the musical don't exist. Okay. What are the other ones? Uh, Honeymoon Honeymoon in Vegas. Vegas. (laughs) Oh yeah. Mr. Saturday night. Right. (laughs) And there's like, there's a couple others, but like newsies is the one that works. So, and Aladdin, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. The honeymoon in Vegas one, when we talked about that, was also done by somebody quite, I mean, Alan Menken did this. Right. Yes. Who did? Uh, Jason Robert Brown did both honeymoon in Vegas and Mr. Saturday night. Uh, I keep wanting to have him on to chat about (laughs) that. Like, I don't know how I'd get in touch with him. Jason, if you're listening. I bizarrely have seen none of those shows. And Aladdin is obviously the only one that is. Still running? Still, yeah, or still, still alive, yeah. Yeah, had extended yeah. run. All the other ones, I feel like, kind of... Well, Newsies was pretty Newsies, big. Oh, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I'm For sorry. What it's worth, yeah. But I never yeah. saw it. Yeah. Newsies made it to a thousand performances, yes. which is kind of the... Is that like, the... That's the... I mean, like, obviously, you can make your money back elsewhere, but if you make it to a thousand, it's pretty... It's like the hundred episodes of TV. Okay. I think that Newsies made it to a thousand and one, <laughs> so... <laughs> Newsies also feels like one that will now be performed at schools for the yes. rest of time. Yes. Yeah. Like my memory, I'm sure you covered all of this in the proper Newsies episode, but my memory is that like 
Disney had their like A list theatrical productions, mm-hmm. which were mostly let's take our biggest undeniable hits totally. yep. and adapt them. Yep. And then there was this like demand for newsies. They yep. sort of let their B team put out like a regional mm-hmm. theater version of newsies. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. And then that was doing so well that they were like, we concede, I guess we have to put this on Broadway. <laughs> but it was like a couple years of them being like, this isn't one of our serious stage musicals, right? Yeah, it's like how the Hunchback of Notre Dame musical has just been running in Berlin for like right. 20 years. Right. But like every time people are like, this is an amazing show. We need to bring yes. it somewhere other than Berlin. Disney's like, we don't acknowledge that this exists. But also, but it, I do remember when they announced that and they were like, we're calling our shot. The next big one is Hunchback. James Lapine's coming in. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, this is too weird for us. <laughs> but it was like announced with the intention of like, yes. this will be our next one that runs for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Newsies that truly felt like they were like, yeah. They're browbeaten into it. Well, yeah. it, gener- we talked about this on the Newsies episode, but like generationally, yes. Newsies feels very sort of in the brains of a generation because it played consistently on Disney Channel I think or what have it you. It is very much like a goofy movie. <laughs> sure, sure, we're sure. internally at the company, they were like, this is some weird thing that did okay. Mm-hmm. And they, for a long time, weren't even denying, but somehow were not registering yep. the passion. Hocus Pocus, same thing. Sure, sure, sure. Where in all three cases, I feel like it took too long for Disney to be like, fuck, we should be squeezing this for money. Yep. When they're usually so good at that. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting in that list of 1992 musical adaptations, Newsies is the one that succeeds outside of Aladdin, which yeah. is it's different. Thing. It's a different thing. normal yeah. success, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But Newsies is like the one that succeeds almost in spite of itself. <laughs> yeah. And the other ones were like, we know you all think it's insane that we're going to do Honeymoon in Vegas on Broadway, but trust us, when you sure. see it, it's going to work. Like top level people yeah. attaching to a movie <laughs> yeah. that doesn't really have like a real history or fondness, totally. not a musical originally. Yeah. Did they do Sister Act as a musical? They did. They did, they did do Sister, and so that also failed. I feel that like that failed. did was failed less spectacularly. That got Tony like, nominations. Right. These others, like Leap of Faith, was nominated for best musical and nothing else. Right. But like Sister Act got a few nominations. Sister so Act, like I feel like, didn't hit break even but also didn't close so quickly that it was wasn't embarrassing. embarrassing yeah leap of faith was one of those ones where they were just like i remember the press campaign the interviews being like i know you think it's weird that we're doing leap of faith on broadway yeah <laughs> either you don't remember this movie or it means nothing to you and it's like okay so this year is the year alan Menken finally wins his tony for newsies right. sure he also did the score for leap of faith and that was yeah. like his passion right project. right he spent years pushing that, that up the hill the selling what? point yeah. was just like trust alan when you see this you're gonna get it it's undeniable he loves that central character and i get it mm-hmm. that's a great that's a music man character 100 yeah, percent a yes. fucking musical Jonas around nightingale that is definitely yeah. built in that mold what is fascinating to me is i rewatched this with the like Trying to put on the Mencken hat. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. What are you clocking in watching this movie that makes you think, I want to rebuild this in a different format, right? And you can kind of see, like, I think this movie is fascinating. So do I. You gave me a list of a kind of, like, weird. Yeah. (laughs) And I was sort of like, some of these movies I have stronger connections to. I mean, I've gotten to this space now where, like, when I I go on other movie podcasts, I try to pick movies that, a, we haven't covered on Blank Check, sure. which now having done the show for nine years, harder and harder. bigger and bigger list of movies <laughs> we've covered in some way. And then two, I like try to disqualify anything that feels not even inevitable to cover on the show, but mm-hmm. like 
deeply possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anything that's part of like too much of a career or a franchise, it feels like we could do on Patreon. I try to rule out. So you send me a list of like, well, that eliminates a lot of things. Yes, yes, yes. One in particular that we talked about. Yes, yes, yeah. And they're like, it was this odd grouping, and I was like, is there one of these I have like more of a feeling for that I care about more? <laughs> Either like strongly like for or against. Yep. And I was like, leap of faith, I like don't care about that much, but I am endlessly fascinated, fascinated by it. I had yeah. seen before. I weirdly seen think about a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think about this movie a lot too. Like and I had seen, seen it, it one time oh, when I was like thirteen. Okay. okay, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. And like it it hung with me in a weird way. Uh, I'm just looking up the filmography of director Richard Pierce. It's an interesting uh, filmography. Yeah. <laughs> the the only theatrical movie he made after this is a family thing, which is the movie where James Earl Jones and Robert Duvall are brothers, and the yes. whole thing was like sold like twins. But yes. it's like a thoughtful drama. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Never saw it. No. I, I mean, what I think is interesting too about the sister act of it all too yeah. is. You have sort of this moment where big comedy names yes. are doing overtly religious movies, right? That's interesting. Yeah. And which, and I was racking my brain trying to think of the last time that happened. Which, uh, Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights. <laughs> that, might, that might very well be it. Honestly, yeah. But because now I think that people are very sort of skeptical or, or just don't yes. want to jump into the whole religious pool yes. but both these movies one i think being i mean sister act is just financially more successful yeah and i think that whoopi folds better in into it every sense yeah. right like, audiences <laughs> loved it critics had to be like we can't deny this and it was right. a big hit yeah but it's interesting that like this movie that i mean notoriously michael keaton was originally cast in it I, I, look a thing i didn't even realize but makes me want to talk about this more because <laughs> those are your two guys i mean two of your guys two of my, Martin like, and, absolute and mount keaton. rushmore guys yeah. and i think another reason i was attracted to talking about this movie is that it feels uh in an interesting it feels like an interesting prism through which to discuss mm-hmm. steve martin's movie career totally. And specifically his 90s. Yes. Where it felt like he was really trying to see if he could redefine himself a little. Absolutely. But alternating between that and straight down the middle. House sitter. Yeah. And they they all worked. (laughs) Yeah. Like anytime he did a normal thing, it worked. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, unlike a lot of these guys who are like, I want to be taken more seriously. I want to move out of my pigeonhole. What he would go back and do a house sitter or a father of the bride part two. You never felt there was like contempt of like the audiences are making me do this. Yeah. It always felt like he respected the broad studio comedies. Sure. Especially as he's now like 90s or when he becomes like America's dad. Mm -hmm. Right? Like he is no, the wild and crazy guy thing is totally gone. Absolutely. And he becomes like he alternates between being sort of this like embodiment of like suburban, like bottled frustration. Mm -hmm. And, and also he's like, Leaning into the second era of his main comedic persona, which is like, I am now rich out of touch snob. And like, he's riffing on those two things wildly successfully. Mm -hmm. And then he keeps on doing these weird, like dramedies where none of them are like, none of them work. Just looking at his filmography. And none of them, he's like the problem. No. He's also never totally working. Well, I, I so I, watching this film, this yeah. movie really actually does feel like a fulcrum point for him. Like it really Absolutely. does feel like where the sort of road diverges yes. in terms of 
And I guess the question I was asking myself as I was watching this and looking at his filmography, is there a Bill Murray-esque career that Steve Martin well, didn't get a chance at? Great, great tee up. Because I feel like after Lost in Translation comes out, and that became yeah. such a good reference point mm-hmm. for any A-list comedy star wants their Lost in Translation yeah. to redefine themselves in the final act of their career. Um, and I, I remember people asking him, and his response was always, I tried stuff like that a bunch of times in the 90s, and audiences always rejected it. Mm-hmm. And, and he they was good. No, no, <laughs> like, but you know what's funny was he was saying it wasn't even like the market rejected it, mm. so they won't let me do it again, or I care enough about success that yeah. I won't keep doing something that fails. Um, because they said, like, we'll do the smaller version, do the indie version, find the director who's sort of at the different point in their career. Don't make it like the problem with a lot of these movies is they were sold and produced and pushed out at a studio level right. with the same energy and money of the Steve Martin mainstream comedies. Right. Right. And you had audiences being like, what the fuck is this? Right. But his takeaway from it was I would like sit in those screenings and the audience would kind of reject it. Like, they would refuse to take me seriously. Like, he was like, I don't, it's not me feeling beaten down by this. I, like, watched in real time that I was never able to overcome Hmm. some type of relationship with the audience. And you watch this stuff, and I think this is kind of the most interesting example of that experimentation. Yes. In so many ways. And part of what's interesting about it is the whole, like evangelist showman part of it mm-hmm. allows him to in theory have his cake and eat it too yep do a dramatic performance that also has kind of wild and crazy guy energy and mm-hmm. steve martin showboating which maybe works against <laughs> him redefining it i mean this is all stuff i want to yeah dig into i think also i mean the bill murray comparison i think people forget too that like the wes anderson stuff does tee up Yes. Translation, right? Like, yeah. it does, you know, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums both give him an opportunity to show sort of sad sack comedic energy. That's the thing he absolutely yeah. never got, which I do yeah. think is the important bridging element yeah. is no one ever gave him the movie, lead or supporting, where it is you are leaning into sad clown. Yep. It is yeah. still a comedy, it is still a comedic performance, but you're taking this sort of subtextual mm-hmm. pathos of the guy, which I would argue has always been there. Mm-hmm. There is something. There's, I think there's a lot of sadness to Steve Martin. I, agree. I think there's an interesting amount of anger to Steve Martin. Yeah. And I think also he is like a deeply serious man. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this um, event I think about a lot because the other thing that's happening in the nineties is he's like, I'm going to like write Picasso at the La Panagile. <laughs> like I'm going to do my projects for no one. Yeah. I'm going to do my stuff that is like personal expression. Right. And then later he's like, I'm doing my bluegrass album. Like, you know, just, <laughs> like this isn't comedy. I have to message to people. This isn't comedy. Right. I'm doing a concert. Don't expect me to do comedy songs, you know, like, and he's always done it with this attitude of like, I'm not asking you to take me more seriously now, but almost like messaging buyer beware. Right. This is me doing self-indulgent stuff. I don't want you to show up and be disappointed. And there was yeah. this event at the 92nd Street Y, maybe about 10 years ago, that was like Steve Martin in conversation. Mm-hmm. And it sold out really fast. And it had been advertised as Steve Martin talks about art. Sure. And <laughs> it was maybe some years after Wild and Crazy Guy, his book came out, which is like one of the greatest books ever written on comedy. Okay. And was uncharacteristically open in a way that Steve Martin rarely is about his career and his process. 
Um, and I think people assumed it was going to be more of that. Like, oh, we're not going to see Steve Martin do comedy, but it's going to be Steve Martin doing the hits of his career and his process and whatever. Sure. But it was truly Steve Martin talks about what he likes in fine art. Steve Martin talks That's about incredible. his art collection, right? And it was like written up in New York outlets that the audience just turned on it so hard. We're like 15 minutes in. He was like, I'm sorry. I feel like you all <laughs> hate this. Yeah. And they were like, it wasn't even that the audience wasn't into it. It's yeah. that he started getting so like depressed and sad sacky about like, I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> if people buy a ticket to me, they expect I'm going to tell jokes and this is on me. I'm sorry. You can all get a refund. Like they were like the last 40 minutes of it becomes like, I'm sorry. I, I feel bad that I tried to talk about the stuff. I like. Yeah. And there's none of that. Like, why won't you let me, what is this gilded cage? I'm in. He's huh. never fighting it. He always seems to feel defeated by it of like, I tried it and no one liked it. And I'm sorry for even trying. And he never found yet yeah, the fulcrum point that allowed yeah. the bridge to happen. I- but you throw out, the the sort of Bill Murray loss in translation of it all, the one that felt the only time, and there are other elements in his career were like, in the 80s, the earliest version of Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick was sure. built for Steve Martin. Which, hell yeah. Right. Incredible. Yeah. There are like stories you hear like that where movies that ended up being radically different at yep. some point before he was even trying to test these muscles, yep. a filmmaker, a high-level dramatic filmmaker was like, what I if I... Yeah. Right. But that was more like push him into very different mm-hmm. territory. What if After House Sitter, Eyes Wide Shut had been a how when Martin and Han like reunited? Yes. By the way, yes. Martin, Han, Kubrick? Yeah. <laughs> the one that on paper felt like that was... That could have been the one that worked for him. Yeah. Is I remember when... Um, Jason Reitman was uh, promoting Up in the Air. Mm, mm. And everyone was like, so you wrote this for Clooney, right? Like, what were you going to do if Clooney didn't do this? And he said, George was absolutely, like, I wrote this for Clooney. Mm. My only backup option I had if Clooney rejected it was I was going to dramatically rewrite the script for Steve Martin. Which I could see. That would have worked. And he was like, there are two versions of it. I wouldn't have just slotted him into this. It would have been very different with this guy at a different stage in his life. But you that know, was the one version. And you're like, that's a piece of material you could see. I could see him doing that. Where he gets like jokes and he's funny, but it's speaking to an essential loneliness. Yeah. I do wonder about parenthood. I love uh, parenthood. Like, like that is a sick, more sitcom-y movie yes. than, like a lost, than like a Rushmore or something. But it yeah. felt like him figuring out Robin Williams mode. And it yeah. feels like yeah. what he took from it was, I'm just going to play a dad a bunch. Yes. Right. Cause it's like, I can still be funny, but not as the silly, ridiculous guy anymore. Rewatching parenthood recently, like last week, it is so much more sitcom than I remembered it mm-hmm. being. The thing I had completely forgotten is how many like fantasy sequences it has yeah. mm-hmm. where he gets to do basically sketch comedy, yeah. which I think really sold the balance for audiences of like, I'm not just seeing Steve Martin in button down mode. Sure. It also, I mean, that movie is also kind of a turning point for Ron Howard as well. Like yeah. it feels like it's, I think parenthood's a legitimately underrated movie. I, I think it's, I, I think really it's doing a lot it. of things really well. Yeah. The movie that I was thinking about was shop girl, mm-hmm. which I have my issues with. Cause yeah. I think that that movie doesn't, age particularly well i haven't watched in a while yeah. but it is kind of a first of all it's an interesting like it's an interesting cast i mean oh. schwartzman claire danes and and steve martin are yes. just 
kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, the book, which I never read that Steve Martin wrote, read the book and yeah. then he adapted himself, yes. um, is a little bit sort of <laughs> old man falls in love with young shop girl. I mean, but he's good in it and it's got like some, some you I mean, know, it, juice in it. That, that book, I remember reading it when it came out yeah. and being like, Oh, this is about him and his now wife. Mm. This is clearly autobiographical. Okay. Um, and, and is kind of like in that way textually about. It almost feels like it's him writing a book to litigate: Am I a creep? <laughs> like, have I become a cliche of myself? The rich old man who like woos yeah. some like pretty girl behind sure. a counter, and the love triangle of that movie is like: Should she be with the guy her own age? But the guy her own age kind of sucks. Kind of sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like sort of going like, I feel guilty that I've become the cliche of the guy, but also I understand why a woman would rather be with the man who not just has the resources, but like sure. kind of has his life together, but also is more sad sacky than this young guy with energy. And then him making the movie and casting himself in that part mm-hmm. makes it very fascinating. Because I do think he's quite good in that movie. I do too. And I think it's a very revealing performance. Yeah. I think it's his best quote unquote dramatic performance. I I think it's the best he's ever worked in that vein. Yeah. But it really feels like that's him totally naked. Another movie that doesn't exist. The thing that uh, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, Bill Murray all did was turn themselves over to directors. Yes. Every time Martin wants to like break out of his, he's writing it. And I Mm -hmm. think that he. I love LA story. I've never revisited it. I don't want to because I think it's probably aged weirdly. Yeah. But um I yes. you know, he uh he does Grand Canyon yeah. and he does mixed nuts and those two are like him trying to work with like an interesting director and yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't land. And then this is like sandwiched between them is him like he turns himself over to this Richard Pierce. <laughs> so <laughs> why not? Well, and then there's um What's it called? Simple Twist of Fate, yes. which is the Silas Marner. Correct. Yeah, Marner remake of Silas right. Marner. <laughs> like all these things, most of them he's, you're right, kind of steering in some way. Yeah. Where he's like writing or it feels like he was the main force kind of putting it together. But a lot of them are these kind of journeyman directors. And then when he would hand himself off over to someone who had sort of more bona fide chops they maybe weren't pushing him the right way. Mm-hmm. Well, like Spanish Prisoner is an interesting movie, the, the yes. David Manman movie, and he's quite good in it, but again, playing totally serious. That is the example he always cites as, that was the moment where I decided I'm never going to try to do this ever again. Oh, okay. Where he said, you know, like, <laughs> fucking David Mamet's my friend. I was so honored he asked me to do it. Right. I thought it was an interesting character. I go to the test screenings. I come on screen. The audience starts laughing, and I immediately felt bad. Yeah. For the movie that I had ruined it. I, I, I do and think, I think he's too hard on himself about that. I do too. And I think he's good in Spanish Prisoner. Same. But he was just like, I don't want to ruin anyone else's material That's by fair. basically, in his mind, creating the 92nd Street Y dynamic where audiences feel like they've been sold a false bill of goods. Yeah. I think he's in a place right now where he could – oh, I think only murders – in the building. Yeah. I'm not like that. That show has its ups and downs, yeah. but like, it feels like it has given people a renewed appreciation of him. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And also he gets to play a little bit more dramatic and romantic on that yeah. show than he normally does. And I wonder if like he could Perfect. translate into yeah. that into something with like, I don't know. I feel like he'd be really good with Celine song for some reason. I just feel yeah, like, cool. why not sure, do sure. that? Do something a little bit. I think he's good when he's a little bit wistful. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think he's, I mean, part of the weirdness of him is, 
in the late 90s. Obviously, he thought Mixed Nuts was going to be, I mean, it was Nora Ephron, and I'm sure that everybody thought that that, that was going to work. Remind me, does this, does Leap of Faith come out before or after Mixed Nuts? Before. Mm-hmm. And this with, is 92, Mixed Nuts is 94. Okay. And then it, Sergeant Bilko. Fascinating that they are his two dyed hair comedies. <laughs> or I, I was trying to place, were they shot back to back? Did he die for mm. one, hold it over for the other? Mm. But that's another thing where dyed hair, this comes out, flops. First yeah. time there's a Steve Martin poster where he doesn't have white or gray hair. Yeah. And then Mixed Nuts pointedly puts a Santa Claus hat on him. Yeah. Where on the poster, yeah. where it feels like they were hiding, audiences yeah. don't like him with dyed hair. This also the hair in this is just a strange shade too. Fair. It's not. It's it's like they don't want to go full too dark, but they don't want to. It's it doesn't. And, and I get work. that they probably were like, well, this guy would have a sort of bad artificial dye job. Sure, but I'm also like, this guy with white hair makes more sense. Probably holds more weight on stage. Yeah, absolutely. They're like they're like the, the all the guys they're riffing on had bright shock. That's the hair. thing. Yep. Like like the most obvious. Analog for Jonas Nightingale is this this uh, faith healer on television called Benny Hinn, who has this like really tall pompadour that's mm. like just shock white, mm. and like uh, I, I'm guessing they took a lot of his the techniques that he used to like seem like he was healing people. Ricky yes. Jay, who's one of my I'm sure. huge like Ricky Jay is like one of the people I, I I love most in all of reality, one of the greatest human beings yeah. to ever live. Absolutely, and like he did a lot of the consulting here, and it does feel like they're drawing from like you read about how Benny Hinn was finally exposed. And it's like a lot of the stuff in this movie. Yeah, there's this, this so, by the way, is the other reason I wanted to cover this movie on this podcast <laughs> is I'm very interested to hear your perspective on a lot oh, of I this. I very animal. much want to hear. I'm a Both as someone with a religious background, yes, but yes. also I feel like you were one of the only people I know who like actually interrogates religious films on an analytical level <laughs> and has tried to sell me on the value of watching some of them sometimes. Sure, sure. Where like the discourse around those movies, which have become increasingly a huge subgenre mm-hmm. and basically a giant industry in and of itself, mm-hmm. are either like, well, the people who love them are died in the wool and have like are, are playing no critical facilities to this whatever faculties mm-hmm. they're just blindly going to see whatever like it's a faith healer in a tent yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. or people just dismiss them out of hand yeah. and you like really like dig into like this is weird what's going on here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. before I, we do that though yeah can i do a little bit of context before phil, we read, dive into do, that phil read your thing let's do it <laughs> just because because my fear is that people don't know what the fuck we're talking about because yes. a lot of people have not seen this movie they haven't uh, yeah i know uh touring christian evangelist jonas nightingale played by steve martin and his cohorts uh tend to their bogus faith healing revivals in major cities where hefty donations flow freely but when jonas and company find themselves stuck in a remote nook of kansas they decide to perform for the locals and take them for all their worth the show goes off without a hitch until sensible lawman will braverman played of course by liam neeson uh catches onto the scam and vows to prove to everyone that jonas is a fake leap of faith opened on december 18th 1992 and let's do just a very brief box office game okay um i will say i know this movie bombed because for so long even as like a diehard steve martin kid Mm -hmm. my only association with this movie was the david spade weekend update bit oh i don't know that he (laughs) They pl- they showed the poster for the movie. Sure. With him in the, the mirrored, Correct. mirrored blazer. And he went, oh, look, children, it's a falling star. <laughs> and I think he had similarly <laughs> done a bit like that for one of Eddie Murphy's flops around the same time. 
which is in the uh, distinguished the top, gentleman. Yeah, that's in the top five. Okay, a movie that also doesn't exist. So I think he did that bit first, and Eddie Murphy got publicly really angry, and that's when he was like, "I'm never fucking going back on SNL ever again." A thing he oh, held wow. on to for twenty years. <laughs> Where he was like, I saved the show. Yeah. How dare you fucking attack me? So then I think when Spade makes the similar joke or might have done the exact same wording with Steve Martin, it's like a callback. But the bit is Steve Martin comes on. <laughs> okay. Walks behind David Spade. Yeah. And is like, get out of the chair. And then sits down and starts attacking David Spade's career in the same <laughs> way. And there was something about like, oh, I'm watching this years later, right. and I'm like, that must have been such a big bomb for Steve Martin to come on and immediately be like, I need yeah. to dunk on this movie myself to reclaim the narrative. I need to sit behind the desk and be like, that's a mistake, I'm sorry. I mean, because the, the thing is, he has House Sitter, which comes out earlier in the year, which yeah. is uh, which does well. It does it's fine. Like, like he's, yeah. he's still Steve Martin. Like, he's no one's, Steve Martin. But this movie... Which comes out in December, yes. which means that perhaps they had Oscar potential. Did they think that this I mean, was? I don't know. <laughs> did they think like Steve Martin maybe gets uh, anyway? I wonder if they were doing it for that religious crowd. You know, oh Christmas, it's like sure. like like Sister Act is kind of leaving theaters, and that it crowd is. maybe has, yes. wants to watch something. But because yeah. you posted Phil the mm-hmm. teaser poster for <laughs> this incredible. movie, which is insane. This movie had a like <laughs> multi tiered poster <laughs> rollout. That was what I thought. I'm just like, this isn't Batman. No. But that poster very much has like this holiday season it energy. Does, it, does. Yeah. it has very similar to Unforgiven, which has an amazing one of the best yeah. teaser posters, which yeah. is just the back of Clinton. It just says Unforgiven and the date. Yeah. Kind of has the same energy where they're like Steve Martin and Jesus. And it make, that poster makes it look like a straight up supernatural comedy. It does. It makes it look like Witches of Eastwick or something. Absolutely. It looks and, like Bruce Almighty. Yeah. yeah. He's got it's, it's he's holding a cloud with lightning yes. in his hand. And it makes you think like it's got this energy of like wait until you meet this guy. And I'm like, I can't even imagine what this guy's gonna be like. And then you're like just kind of like an angry con artist. But, um, okay. So, yes, this, okay, so this number opens, one at the box office. This opens yeah, it's not even in the top five. Insane. Uh it, it the first uh is a sequel to a holiday movie that uh everybody loves. Home Alone Two, Home Alone 2 Lost okay. in New York. Uh the second movie comes from your one of your favorite comedy troops, uh also a Christmas movie. Um my favorite comedy troupe. Yes, they, they, they. Um, what's the best way to describe this comedy troupe, Emily? Um, I, I have. I, I, I think I know what you're going for. And when I you say no troupe, I mean like not like it's a group of characters. They've performed, that, they've they've performed together for a long time. They've performed on television together for a long time, okay. for decades, um, mostly for children. Yeah, uh, aimed at children primarily. It's the Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, okay. uh, that's that's a clever way of word. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Distinguished Gentleman is the next one. Uh, then we have one of the Best Picture nominees from 1992 um, from a filmmaker who never got a Best Director nomination. Oh, wow. Never. Um, <laughs> is it Few Good Men? It is a Few Good Men. Yeah. And then the last one these is... These are all opening? These are. That- this is not all opening. This okay, is just top five sure, of that sure. weekend. Yeah. Uh, the last one is... Uh, the second highest grossing film, or maybe the first highest grossing film of 1992, a colossal romantic drama. Um, uh, g- ghosts? No, no, that's, that's not here. Yeah. Uh, it's got an enormous soundtrack. Oh. It's not the bodyguard? It is the bodyguard. It is the bodyguard. Okay. Uh, which you alluded to when you guys did a Star is Born as sort of maybe that's why we didn't, didn't get, get one in the, one 90s. In the 90s, which yeah, yeah. I think tracks. Uh, yeah. This movie makes $23 million on a $20 million budget. I mean, honestly, <laughs> that, that is more than I thought it made. 
<laughs> yeah. I looked like, up its box office run. It went up a little bit. In week oh, really? Two. Yeah. And then it fell just a very little bit in week. And granted, yeah. it's a holiday season. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Like, not a success by any metric. No. No cultural permanence. Nope. But I would have believed this movie made like $4 million if you told me like this was just yeah, absolute. 64% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. Yeah. So like it didn't, 46 from audiences. So like yeah. people that saw it didn't oh, like it. Like just whatever. With but it. like, yeah. Rod Draper gives it three stars. He yeah. quite liked it. He yeah. praises Steve Martin's, you know, performance in it, which I yeah. think a lot of people did. Janet Maslin did the same thing, said yeah. well acted, you know, all that. So it's one of those movies that I feel like, if critics just got on board with it a little bit more, yes. it probably could have led to other things. It is a movie, but also, but like, I almost think it would be insincere for any critic to get more on board with this movie. And I'm not questioning like, you know, the taste of individuals, right? right. If you think this one is a masterpiece, God be with you, right? <laughs> like, I think this is one of those weird movies where I'm like, it is kind of simultaneously neither good nor bad. I, I was on board with this movie yes. more than I expected to be kind of at all. And pretty early on. I think this movie is like almost, um, a ca- catastrophically organized on a narrative level, yeah. <laughs> but the pieces of it are so good. And the cast is and the really cast good. is so good where yeah. you'll be watching it and you'll be like, fuck, this should rule. Yes. I should be so on board with it yes. that it's like, you want to grade it on the curve of like, God, the thing it's trying to do, I like so much. Totally. And at times it hits it. So, it, like, I get giving it a gentleman's three out of four stars. Sure, sure. And I also could just imagine people being, like, not funny, but also not emotional. Yeah, it's it's the Richard Pierce Neither component fish nor foul. Is, is the problem, I think. Yes. The weird thing is this movie needs Ron Howard. Like, yes. not a, not a yes. director where I'm like, yeah, pull, put him in. But, like... It needs that guy who's totally. good with ensembles, who's like good at like pulling out the end. Like this, mm-hmm. this movie needs to be the or, paper. Or it would also have ever. demanded yeah. a rewrite of some sort, yes. or like given notes so that it actually has a third act that works. Well, I don't know. It's crazy because the last twenty minutes of this movie feel like they should happen at the halfway point. Yes, there are fifteen things of major significance that happen in the last fifteen minutes of this movie, where like truly, like at hour thirty. Mm-hmm. You're like this. You're doing this now. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, How the rain isn't the end of the second act yes. is crazy. I think that's a great ending. I think that the rain as the end of the movie is really. Perfect. I kind of I agree do. with that. I okay. think Lucas Haas should be the midpoint. Oh, yes, that's absolutely yes yes, 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 yes. That is the midpoint of yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's crazy that that and the rain and the people being camped outside, <laughs> like all of that, stacked up as like yes. basically three beats of the same idea all at once, very late. Yeah. is wild to me but i can see someone like alan menken especially if he has an interest on this type of character being like fuck all the pieces are there <laughs> yeah. and i feel like emily you went deeper you know into about the, the play than i did I am did. i wrong in my understanding is that the play basically combines the lolita davidovich character with the liam neeson yes. character and when they did it in la they were two separate characters still right uh and okay. then when it went to broadway they were like we're gonna make this one lady sheriff and jonas is gonna fall for her they basically just did the 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 music man uh marion which, which makes yeah, sense it makes perfect sense because perfect when you're watching this it's so wild my memory of watching this i watched this for the first time after philip seymour hoffman died because oh. I was like, you know what? I want to fill all my gaps. Sure. I mean, he's barely in this. He is. And it, like a lot of the gaps I was filling were like his early ensemble work. 
Sure. Where you're like, he's all over this movie and doesn't really do anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's fast. Like this is in his sort of like twister bucket. I think that, I think there's more of him on the editing room floor is my guess. Cause oh, he's cast pretty high up for yeah. all intents and purposes. And this is the same year as son of a woman. Yeah. So, which but also like he has more to fourth build in this movie. Yes. And he <laughs> maybe has five lines. Yeah. Yes. Like it's crazy. You can see how all these guys were doing a lot. Yes. And then just, the, the characters were gutted. Because this editing. movie has yeah. like fucking 5,000 plot lines. <laughs> and, and it doesn't really, like, it isn't set up in a way where you actually have scenes that are built to let the ensemble yep. shine outside of them just cheering for what he's doing. Yay. Yeah. The, 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 the crew, if you will, of yes. his con gets short shrift because yeah. it feels like the Deborah Winger, Liam Neeson stuff in, whether on script or in editing becomes yeah. a lot more substantial. So I'm I'm watching this after Hoffman dies, but I'm not expecting a lot of Hoffman. I'm mostly sure. watching this as like this is a good excuse to now see one of the Steve sure. Martin movies I haven't seen. Yeah. And my memory, having watched this ten years ago or whatever, mm. was like, oh, weirdly, Steve Martin's not really the lead of that movie. It's more of a Deborah Winger, Liam Neeson yeah, film. It is. And he's kind of almost the Beetlejuice character, if you, the biggest have, character. Yeah. And then rewatching it, there was less of the Deborah Winger Neeson than I remember. Oh, it's kind of the weirdest amount it could be as a split. It's the thing like my my quick and easy fix to make this a movie that makes sense is to flip it so Deborah Winger's the lead and Steve Martin is the like supporting. We're yes. going to push him for the That's interesting. That's, That's interesting. Yeah. This movie doesn't really work with him being the center of the story. Because part of it is like I don't know how to fucking read this guy. Yeah. Well, it's it's that, and it's also the romance with Lolita Davidovich yes. doesn't go anywhere. No. Now I don't know if that was just they didn't have much chemistry, and they just figured like we don't really need this character, so she's kind of gutted. Yes. There's that, but then there's also the fact that to your point, he's a very enigmatic character and we which don't is interesting which is interesting yeah. the only thing we learn about him is that he was abandoned by his mother right and that that fucked him up you learn that very late from, very late from deborah winger correct like he's never he's never and the closest he comes is this his final scene with lucas haas yeah it comes at the very end well and, and then the moment with lita davidovich which is kind of sweaty where he's sort of like tell him if yes. he's waiting on this it's all kind of like he's weird like, mirror stuff i think part of the problem is he's 16 years older than lita davidovich and yes. he feels 25 years older <laughs> yes, than yes, her. It yes. feels like he's trying to date like an 18 year old. But also, you're like, this movie sets up two romances mm-hmm. between the traveling hucksters mm-hmm. and the local townspeople who are like, look, these other rubes might fall for your stuff, but please don't hurt these people. The other thing that the play does that Emily mentioned, which I yeah. think is also really smart, is that the Deborah Winger character is his sister. Yeah, not. Yeah, which is which that they needed to do that. As it well. makes so much sense. And Deborah Winger is weirdly overqualified for this role. Yes, and not just overqualified, but it's like her being in it unbalances the movie. She's really good. She's but really good. Better than the but movie deserves. Like, she needs to kind of be the co-lead. Yeah. But yeah. she's just, within the main narrative, just the supportive sounding board. Mm-hmm. The one who knows him best, but without the weird. You need something like the sister where it's just like I the history is baked the in and all of that. Yeah. Um, but also it's like, the yeah, it makes so much sense to gender flip the sheriff mm-hmm. and have it be the person who's trying to bust him in the relationship. Because yeah. the niece and winger scenes are interesting on the level of like, 
<laughs> he hates everything she's doing, but also is falling for her. Yeah. But she, he's able to absolve her of some of the responsibility because she's not leading it. Whereas Leah Davidovich has the same view as Steve Martin, but she also doesn't have the power within the town to do anything the way the Neeson character yeah. does. You're like, that's one fucking plot line. And that's the center of the movie emotionally. It's very strange. Um, Emily, I'd like to dive into the religious component of this and then we'll talk about the, Oh, it's also very strange. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, like I was looking for, I was trying to be like, this movie made more money than I thought it did. Yeah. And I was like looking for the, uh, sort of groundswell. And I started reading Christian movie review blogs and they all like this movie. So I wouldn't say they love it. Did they kind of keep it it afloat after it started? I do wonder, I do wonder if they did like, this does feel like, I remember the Nor Ephron movie Michael came yeah. out and a lot of those church groups went to see that and then they all walked away and were like, what a terrible movie. That right. just blasphemed that was sacrilegious. our Lord and Savior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like this movie doesn't – because this movie ends on the rain yep. and ends on – a lot of them misread it as – you know, in the movie it's explained as Lucas Haas's thing is psychosomatic. So like he kind of like mm-hmm. – he kind of yeah. overcomes his mental block. And like a lot of them have been like, well, now Jesus, of course, has made this, this boy walk, could not walk before. And also he brought the rain. And the movie I think does the very – the rain especially – the movie does the very smart Damon Lindelof thing of there's 20 plausible explanations for this. And there's one religious explanation, but you really want that religious one to be true. And like, I think that that is a smart call it makes, but it also like made Christians be like, this movie acknowledges that God exists and controls everything. And we should applaud it for that. Even though it has some, I'm quoting the review, rough language. Um, <laughs> but there's also, there's an it does end with him screaming. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you were watching this movie as like a died in the wool evangelical, mm-hmm. yeah. there is a read on this film that is like, this is the kind of guy that we all are worried about is like yeah. taking us mm-hmm. for a ride. Yeah. We want to believe guys like this are real, but society is often telling us that they're con artists who are taking advantage of us. And this is a movie in which that guy is challenged and realizes what he thinks is full of shit is real, and he's actually that powerful. Yeah. The unique, like yeah. the uniquely thing, the unique thing about this is right. it comes at a point in time when evangelicals are interested in hearing that because there have been all of the televangelist scandals of the right. Late 80s. right. All these guys are being busted, and so like they're like, okay, well, we want to see about this guy, you know, and like then he has like a real religious experience. They are grafting onto it a narrative that doesn't really exist within right. the film, but, but that feels yes. like a movie. But this you know? movie that you can read it as saying like this movie is simultaneously saying yes, we know most of these guys are fake, mm-hmm. but also. So God is real and miracles happen. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like a pretty convenient way to process the world if you've now got caught up in several of these scandals with which sure. guys you bought as like false prophets. This is like, you, know? you see why Alan Menken looked at this and said, This is the music man. Because it's like yeah. all right there. Yeah. And he could but he could never quite solve it. I think that I think the other solve I would do is make his antagonist like a minister. Like that, that he starts to fall for. Like I think sure, that's sure. Um, the the musical introduces kind of a counterpoint storyline about like a, a black family that's very religious, and uh, it's one of the early roles for Leslie Odom Jr. And like, oh, wow. you can see yeah. where like that all kind of would click. His songs on the soundtrack are amazing. The thing about that this movie gets dead wrong about evangelicalism is that it has a crucifix. And, uh, there would, the evangelical tradition has empty cross because the idea is mm-hmm. that Jesus is, we're not like Catholicism. It makes sense if you're making a movie that you want to reach a mass audience because Catholicism is the church that most people know and that has a yeah. crucifix. But it is totally unrealistic that there would be one there. Cinema Sins counter goes up to 48. Like that's really it, seriously. Like the fact that there's a crucifix in this immediately pinged me as like, Oh, this is made by people who don't know what they're doing. Interesting. Yeah. But is it, is the crucifix there only for, 
ultimately plot purposes, which is exactly. two thirds of the way through the film, he fakes that the crucifix opens his eye. I think that it is. I think that it is <laughs> there. Yes. I think that it is there because they need a representation of Jesus, and that's the easiest way to get sure. one. I think there's a ton of plot reasons you do that. I not. I don't necessarily think they didn't know what they were doing, but that's like my deep dyed six year old yeah. evangelical Christian they, self was like yeah. wrong. If they pass you the script, the first note you have is you have to change what the visual miracle is. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's and it's face of Jesus on the side of a. And it's whatever it is, right? A lot of times there would be like a bleeding cross. Sure. So it's like an empty cross, but like yeah. blood is dripping down. Like that's that's an easy right. thing you could do. There but are like a lot yeah. of ways to achieve the same plot function without. Y- yeah. yeah. I mean, I never would have pinged that ever. <laughs> So, that's, that's interesting. Why, that's that's why what you're I'm here on the for. Show. Yeah, I mean, but I do think though, and I'm, I'm curious, Emily, because you obviously know more about this than I do. But at this point, there's a fair amount of people being outed, if you will, in yeah. terms of being hucksters and conners, what have you. Yeah. And a lot of it stems from the technological advancements that are going mm-hmm. on, right? So you have this kind of, which I didn't know, but this whole like tech version of Deborah Winger's guy in the van sure. element, right? Where she's looking at all these different camera angles and they're able to, you know, earpieces and what have you. Was that part of, like, was there a, a sort of surgence of these corners because of the technology? I, or? Think, uh, I think there's always been uh, these, these cons. And I think uh, I, the first scene of this movie made me think I was going to love it when they get pulled yeah, over by the, the cop, cop yes. and Steve Martin just kind of like yeah. guts his way through conning this guy. And so like, many scenes, scenes where you're just like, I, I, this could be true. I think this is a yeah. masterpiece. Yeah. So, I want to go to the mat for this so hard. Yeah. yeah. So like the, the faith healing stuff and the, like, I'm going to like, God is giving me, spe- it's just traditional confidence games. Like they've been around forever, yeah. but yes, the tech aspect adds something to it. What's interesting about this is that like a lot of the telev- televangelists who fall, fall because they cheat on their wives, right. you know, they have relationships with prostitutes or of something course. like that. Yeah. Sex workers. Um, I just, I always sure. correct myself, sure. uh, but, uh, they, they fall prey to classic rookie moves yeah exactly <laughs> yeah or you know like there's uh some of them uh are caught with uh young men and yes. it's like oh well this guy who was in my house naked is i wasn't sleeping with him he was he just, just wandering around my house yeah. naked yeah. you know and you're right that usually like that is the catalyst that then causes a larger investigation into their thing mm-hmm. which then reveals mm-hmm. the sort of like financial scheme I like there's two really great novels written by ex-evangelical uh, people, Kelsey, Kelsey McKinney's um, uh, God Spare the Girls, which is like about a evangelist followed by a sex scandal. And the other one, it's called Miracle Season. I don't remember the author, yeah. but it is about a, a evangelist followed by a faith healing scandal. And like those yeah. are kind of the two things when we were all coming of age that was like in the culture. But so, you have these one-two punches of like – a, we're finding out they're hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then B, we're finding out that they've built this pyramid scheme with our money. Yeah. Right. This, so this particular script was apparently loosely based on this Peter Popoff person. I don't know if you know who this person okay. is. No. So a televangelist who performed a similar trick with his wife at a microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and his career took a nosedive when he was publicly outed on the Johnny Carson show by a professional magician mm-hmm. who, uh, and skeptic who managed to smuggle a radio scanner into one of the revival things. Oh, right, right. I've heard about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of where this loosely comes was, from. Was that the amazing, uh, the amazing Rand? What's his yeah, name? Yeah, uh, James Randi. James Randi. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, that's the thing about the monoculture. We talk about the monoculture a lot on this show. You could expose a charlatan, yeah. and now you can't. Yeah. You just can't. You can't. <laughs> it's right. yeah. I mean, it's it is just fascinating to me that this sort of th- th- this confluence of technology and religion well, at this moment. I think there's another thing. 
you have to add into the soup, which is cable TV. Yeah, sure. sure I sure, think sure. certainly like the the stagecraft technology mm-hmm. makes it a lot easier for people to put on these shows and make yeah. them even more explosively impressive to craft greater miracles. But the other thing is like cable TV suddenly means you have all these channels that are like we only have twelve hours of programming a day. Mm-hmm. Here's like paid advertising. Here's a block that runs at odd hours. Especially these people, right? I right. Mean, or they're starting night. their own yeah. channels. Yep. So just, these guys are just like, they suddenly have a much greater communication device than they've ever had, which makes it fascinating that like, th- it does feel like this movie is about the 70s version of yes. this guy. Yes. Aside from the pyrotechnics of the show itself, yeah. the weird like hippie bus traveling circus element of yeah. it, you're like, this guy would be trying to do it on a bigger scale. You set, you set this, that opening scene on TV. You set it yeah. in like he pulls somebody out of the crowd and he cons them in front of everyone. It's mm-hmm. on TBN or one of those channels. And then he goes on the road and his bus breaks down somewhere. Like right. that, like that gets you, then everyone knows who he is. Yeah, and yes. like this, it's a very weird. Yeah, no one uh, knows who this guy is. No one, yeah, he comes out of nowhere. Comes out of nowhere. I mean, well, and which is very music, man. I mean, yeah, but he's got that sort of like old school con artist thing where it's like you keep a low profile so the stories don't travel from town sure, to town. Sure, yeah. sure. Whereas this type of guy at this point is telegraphing himself as loud and as frequently as possible and there's a certain hubris and arrogance to these guys of like nothing's fucking taking me down yeah yeah i don't need to hide i don't need to like i i'm advertising yeah it's it's, national is this this is around the time of tammy faye as well right tammy faye's about uh tammy faye's about six seven years earlier like that's that's the first big one to really break jim baker is like i you know he goes on tv and it's like i have uh, failed my god i failed my wife and it's tears but this is a movie that feels like it kind of doesn't acknowledge that yeah Yeah. it is not a movie that takes place in the wake of a cultural moment that day. At all. Let alone the other scandals of that ilk that happened in the ensuing years. I totally agree. Um, we mentioned this earlier, but what would you think of Michael Keaton in this role? Yes. So, <laughs> I think I think Martin's good in this. Yeah. I think he's most interesting in the scenes, like you were saying, Emily, the sort of like him trying to get his way out of the parking ticket playing basketball against the guys. Sure. Sort of like using theatrics to try to like win a date with Lita Davidovich. Uh-huh. That stuff, he's like doing these sort of small cons almost like spitefully and for sport. Yeah. There is an anger there that's really fascinating. Um, and I feel like you don't often see with Steve Martin. I feel like he will play anger that comes out of extreme frustration. Mm-hmm. You know, like the angriest he usually gets in a movie is like the planes, trains, and automobiles scene <laughs> that immediately corrects him as like this guy was an asshole and he needs to learn to care. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There's that kind of thing. I can't believe my daughter's having a baby sort of stuff. <laughs> you know, everyone's driving me crazy. Yeah. Queen Latifah's bringing down the house. Like <laughs> that's the mode of anger that we're used to for him. And this is like a quiet sort of like disdain yeah. and contempt yeah. for everyone around him is an idiot. Yeah. And I even think he views the rest of the bus as like, they're my allies, but they're not next level operators the way I am, save for Deborah Wing. I agree. It's, uh, it is the, his backstory, you know, falling into the, the child protective services, yeah. child welfare. Right. Like, 
a lot of that was run by churches when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't like the thing you find out when you're uh, a, a Christian kid who doesn't quite believe everything is that you quickly figure out how to lie and you yeah, quickly absolutely. figure out. How to say, I mean, this is every religion, but like right. Christianity is what I'm familiar. But this with. guy has like a well earned cynicism, yeah, that mm-hmm. he feels has been supported by the world. And he's got that attitude that a lot of these guys have of like, I'm not an asshole. I'm just smart, right? It's the Trump yeah. like, I don't pay my taxes because I'm smart. Yeah. You're an idiot if you fucking play by those rules. Right. Yeah. Which this is, is the only way to survive. Which is why Lucas Haas should be the midpoint and the end should be him seeing like this rain, which is possibly a miracle. He like, should be yeah, He should be having the crisis of faith for the entire second half of the movie yeah. Yeah. of being angry that anything good is happening because of him, yeah. questioning whether he has any actual power, if it's coincidence, whatever. Um but I do think when you get to the actual performances of this movie, mm-hmm. and one of the things that makes this movie interesting, but I also think is fundamentally kind of fucked <laughs> in how it's built, uh-huh. is it almost is structured like a a concert tour documentary, <laughs> where yeah. you're like fully forty percent of this movie is maybe on stage performance, mm-hmm. and and a lot of the stuff outside of that is the kind of classic tour documentary cutaway to show you the crew mm-hmm. what he does in the off days totally. he goes to the local diner and meets fans kind of stuff but it doesn't have like narrative build and then they'll cut away to the deborah winger liam neeson and you're like i think that's why in my mind i remembered that being the a plot because i'm like it's the only story that like progresses naturally yeah i mean so much of this is in the tent yes I mean, so much of it. so much <laughs> And on one hand, you're like, well, great to have Steve Martin do this. Yeah. This guy hasn't done stand-up in fucking 15 years, mm-hmm. but we want to see him just cut loose on stage. The problem is, I do think he, in those performances, as captivating as he is, you just fucking love to see Steve Martin on stage mm-hmm. wearing silly suits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, this is a thing we all fucking eat up for 15 years, yeah. right? Um, he He has a hard time, I think, not falling into his 70s stand-up persona in those routines, which was a doofus. Like that character, his stand-up character was hyper-confident doofus, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And there's a silliness to the way he performs it that is undoubtedly engaging. You don't question he would get an audience, but the real versions of these guys are so Mm self-serious and self-righteous and dramatic about it, where their sort of theatricality and pomp and circumstance is not the kind of showmanship that he's doing which is much more harold hill michael keaton i think would have been a little more dangerous on stage yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that's the big difference is i think he would have had a little more menace yeah and a little more of that kind of like insipid because when steve martin's doing his routines in this i'm like i don't he's not performing like he believes what he's saying he's doing it in quotes he's doing it like the character is so insincere that he can't even feign giving a shit. It's just like song and dance versus Michael Keaton would have like committed really hard in a way that would have made him scary. I also just think think that Michael Keaton, I mean, you put it perfectly like there is more danger to Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton has played dramatic roles and, and sort of, you know, villainous type and things he can of, pull that off right a lot of his like like beetlejuice is a dangerous comedy sure. character he's sure. a genuine menace yeah. i won't say his name again <laughs> uh like his batman it's the reason his batman remains so interesting yeah of you're just like is this guy insane yeah yeah uh, yeah i mean it is interesting that he i mean he is attached to this yeah 
for a while. He pulls out and Steve Martin, you know, jumps in, I think after a couple of weeks. So I do wonder what it was, perhaps the things we're bringing up sure. for Michael Keaton that made him go like, this isn't there well, yet. This and is I, you senior know. as Batman Returns. Correct. And basically he has like the rest of his 90s are rough. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say he doesn't do good work or he's in a couple good movies, but like his movie star career, Correct. his his status as a leading man, he like basically the second he leaves Batman, mm-hmm. it's it's totally thrown off axis. Can Correct. we talk about Jack Frost for a little bit? Sure. I watched that this holiday Why? season. I, I was I was watching. Emily loves Christmas. <laughs> I love Christmas. <laughs> oh, I, watched, I mean, okay. I watched Fred Claus for a different podcast. I watched oh. Fred Claus for the first time. That movie is insane <laughs> completely insane and hulu was like i w- i looked hulu was like i'm just gonna start playing jack frost for you emily i know what you want and i was like i'm gonna watch this and uh there's a magic harmonica uh there's yes. the, the snowman i mean everyone has said this but the snowman really does look like Clooney. it's uh <laughs> it is a movie about uh a, a dad who is brought back from the dead by a magic harmonica because he promised not to let his kids down but it does like honor that at the end he just sure. dies again it's that old it's, uh, yeah. yeah it's yeah. it's got some of the worst cgi you've ever seen phil you gotta watch it was it supposed to be a horror movie was that is there some no no that's there there is the other jack frost horror movie okay okay, that's what i was sorry okay which there is an urban legend that they started the same project and split off but the Clooney thing's a hundred percent true. Yeah. So Clooney just bailed on it. Yes, it was. I think originally going to be called Frosty the Snowman, mm-hmm. and was built around Clooney. Mm. Then they started moving it away from Frosty, but still Clooney. Clooney drops out late enough that the animatronic was dumb. It's uh, it. it, it's, yeah. it's 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 wild because it is plausibly just a snowman. But once you know it was supposed to be Clooney, you're like, yeah, that's George Clooney. And that's like at the nadir of Michael Keaton leading man before he kind of goes in the wilderness for a couple of years. What brings him back? Because now I'm just like... He has a couple of false starts at coming back. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's... It, uh, okay. Like, he'll, okay. like, do... Like, whatever it is. Like, seven years later... I mean, Jackie Brown... Is the same year as Jackie Frost. 97, 98 is right. when people... He has those two smaller roles. I think Jack Frost is 98. Jack Frost is 98. Right. Like, um, that... It, Jack Frost is kind of the capper yeah. on that. And then he'll, like, come back and do something like White Noise... Which was like yeah. a hit, but everyone was like, this is kind of depressing that you're in a January horror movie. He's in the Robocop remake. I mean, it's Birdman. It really is Birdman. Yes. yes. He's there, in Herbie Fully Loaded. Let's yes. not forget. <laughs> there Herbie the was ones, Fully Loaded. Like, like when I saw other guys, I was like, he's back. Now everyone's going to hire him to do this again. And it didn't happen, even though that movie was a hit. Yeah. And he's incredible in it. He directed a movie called, um, it's called Mary, the Gentleman. Something, Mary Gentleman. Yes. yes. That's pretty good. Okay. Uh, there's what's it called? Game six. Yeah. Which is based on Don DeLillo novel. I want to yeah, say. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. Like he would do these sort of smaller projects, but I think he was kind of cynical about his own career. Was acknowledged, like God. acknowledged that he would kind of lost it and didn't feel like fighting it too hard. Right. And would take the sort of like paycheck family gig every once in a while, and then do like the smaller leading man. Like doing a lot of voice work. He's in Cars. Yeah. He's in Toy Story Three. Yeah. But like Robocop, Need for Speed, Birdman are all 2014. I, yeah, and like this is the era where I'm like, I anytime Michael Keaton's in a movie, I gotta go see it, support it because they rarely let him do this. Like I yeah. go see Need for Speed opening weekend because he's ninth build, and the fact that within that same year he has the comeback. Like, I'm watching Need for Speed being like, it's really never happened. Huh? 
<laughs> and he's not bad in it. Like I think yeah. he's always kind of good in this shit. I liked him in Dumbo. I, he's got he's Great he's man. got the sequel to the movie that uh, I'm not going to say the yeah, name of. Yeah. But uh, he's also got this. He's got a Halle Meyer Shire movie he coming does. up. Yes. He does. This sounds great. Yeah, he, I, sounds mean, I do think he has found a lane for himself. Yeah. Also, he's like getting paid, right? Like, yeah. he's in the Flash. He's in, I mean, Morbius, Batgirl, notwithstanding. Still getting, you know, for a guy who like got knocked down so weirdly hard in the nineties, for not like he didn't have like huge calamitous flops. Correct. He didn't have like Hudson Hawk, Waterworld esque. No. What a hubristic disaster. Sure, sure. Um, he just kind of made middling movies that didn't really connect, and everyone was like, well, Michael Keaton, you know, like, I guess that. Yeah, it's like he multiplicity also, and shit and speechless. He also and made like, some yeah. movies that people came to like on video. Yeah, like, multiplicity yes. being a great example yeah, yeah. where you're like, that's weird that bombed that hard. Yeah. That should have been a comeback yep. of him kind of giving audiences, great, I'll go back and do kind of Mr. Mom well, as. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it, it didn't work, but it's odd that. Post Birdman, yeah. he's in a zone where like he's made tons of shitty movies in the last ten years. Yes, and some that feel like cynical paycheck movies. Sure. Some that just feel like bad failed prestige projects. He now feels kind of invincible. I think he is invincible. I mean, he weird post Spotlight. Like, yes. He got this like angry dad thing. Yeah, like shaking his fist at you know at the various you know worth and yes. and uh, uh i mean trial whatever trial of chicago seven but whether or not like, those movies know. connect people are like we love michael keaton yeah. he's never going away yeah he's like yeah. a national treasure yeah. right like basically he, totally he won i didn't really love him in dope sick but he wins an emmy for yeah. it like yeah. everyone's dope like it's not bad this is what we love it, yeah yes no you just love it for, and you're like he he is so now like minted. He really is in a way that it's weird that everyone threw him out for fifteen years yeah. because it's like he has the legacy status of like, look, he's always been a star. He will always be a star. Yeah. When in fact he was like so dinged, and I wonder, you have to imagine a movie. <laughs> We've obviously analyzed a lot of story mistakes in this film. Yeah, <laughs> that it's not like I feel if Michael Keaton had done it would have automatically fixed all of those things or he would have fixed those sure. things. Lord knows maybe the reason he dropped out is because the script wasn't totally working. Yeah. I, I have no fucking idea. I do think if he were in this movie, it would have been a bigger hit. If that makes any sense. I, I think so too. Even the exact I mean, same movie would have been a bigger hit and would have maybe built a better bridge to what the next stage of his career is. The ex- this exact same movie, I don't think I don't think he gets an Oscar nomination, but I think people talk about I it. I think he gets a Globe nomination. Yes, absolutely. And I think also this in the same year as Batman Returns, yes. right? Batman Returns in the summer and this in the fall. A better counterpoint for I him he, I agree with that. than Martin having House Sitter in this. Totally agree. Where everyone liked House Sitter, but they were like, yeah, it's another one of these. Yeah. There's nothing ambitious about it. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, the other person that, that, I mean, there's two other people I want to talk about before before we um, bounce the plot real quick, yeah. but the Deborah Winger of it all, yeah. which is she turns down a league of their own to do this film. Yes. Um, which is a choice. I yeah. think we're, I think we're all better off that Gina Davis was in a league of their own. Who's unbelievable in it. And I, by the way, watching Deborah Winger in this, I was like, yeah, but Deborah Winger would have been great in a league of their own too. Like, I, yeah. I mean, she, yeah. it would have been a slightly different energy, but she would have killed it. But this is also the height of the era of everyone saying Deborah Winger too difficult. Is that so? She had a had a I don't know yeah, had a reputation yeah, for being really quote unquote did. difficult. Okay. Yeah, and she's still like a major star at this point. Mm-hmm. Yes, but it's definitely starting to become a thing where it's like, is she losing roles because people don't want to put up for her? 
with her. Interesting. Or is she leaving projects because they're not agreeing with her? Yeah. The next year she does Shadowlands and gets nominated for the Academy Award. Her last Oscar nomination. nomination. And then she does Forget Paris in 95 and then she doesn't work for six years. Yes. Like she uh, – yeah. And in that time in between, searching for Deborah Winger, yeah. the Roseanne Arquette documentary, using her as an example of how even the biggest star mm-hmm. of her generation is basically aged out of Hollywood by 35. Yeah. And, and then yeah. I think – her, Roseanne Arquette uses her as the thesis to make this movie of what the fuck happened yeah. to Deborah Winger. How could someone be a big star who also is like Oscar perennial, right. inevitable, seen as like one of these days they're going to hand her best actress. And then she just pieces out. And Deborah Winger, I think, has talked about it, and this is sort of what the documentary gets to of just like, I just kind of got tired of all of it. I didn't care. Or and needed, I guess. I didn't I need mean, it. I didn't care. Whatever. She comes, I mean, she's great in Rachel getting married. She, she should have gotten an Oscar nomination that probably for that. was really positioned as her like reclamation project. Right. The stuff she does in between when she comes out of retirement, Rachel getting married is like, why is she playing Ed Harris's wife in radio? That was <sighs> a true like reviews pinning. This is her first movie in seven years. Why is she doing this? This is the most thankless. Like yeah. this is why you assume she left Hollywood to not get stuck doing this type of role. So she's actually in two movies in 93. She's in A Dangerous Woman and Shadowlands. And she gets a bunch of critics nominations combined for Dangerous Woman. Yeah. It's like weird that both of I never saw A Dangerous Woman. I've never seen either. Um but yeah, I mean it is interesting cuz I mean listen, the 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 moniker of difficult woman in Hollywood is its own fucking ridiculous thing yes. in, of itself. So yeah. I don't want to read too much into what that was, but it so, certainly seemed to affect her career. Some of look some of these cases, it's very hard to really analyze because certainly I think sure. the deck was stacked against actresses who were expected to not have opinions. Sure. There, I think there was, all actresses, right, yes. Right. Yeah. There was this sort of notion of uh, you should feel grateful right. of what we're giving you. Right. Uh, in ways where it's just like you hear the stories about like the fucking 90s leading man and the insane yeah. ego trips they go on. Absolutely. And when the movies work, they they not only are forgiven, sure. but it's like that's what makes them such a great artist. I mean, you guys just did Barbara Streisand, which is yeah. a perfect example yes. of, of all of that shit totally. times 10. But that's sort of like Kevin Costner vindicated. Yeah, yep, yep. He never gave up and he was right about everything. Mel was right about everything. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of like, you know, Bruce's like weird vanity mm-hmm. projects, winning and losing and all of that. And I just have always gotten the vibe from her. Whereas there's some other actresses of the 90s where you're like, it might have been column A and column B. Right, they right. might have been judged more harshly for behavior every male star would have gotten away with, but they also might have been a little prickly or a little mm-hmm. defensive in a way that makes sense because it's an industry that basically challenges you to become an asshole if you want to retain any autonomy. Absolutely. Deborah Winger has always read to me in interviews how she talks about it now as just like, I truly just like cared. And I was like not willing to go along with it. Yeah. And I would like put my foot down about like, this story thing, like this choice will like play against the integrity of my character. And everyone was just like, shut up, Deborah, take the money. I do think it's in like her, her breakthroughs, urban cowboy, which I watched for the yeah. first time last year Not a bad is, movie. is a good movie. Yeah. She gets so many awards nominations for that. And the thing about it is that movie, she fought 
everyone because the, yeah. it's, it's a movie about spousal abuse that yes. is like she should just be okay with this and she fought it every step huh. of the way and like made that movie more complicated it still is kind of a movie about spousal abuse but like it is and mechanical bulls. and, and yeah. yeah mechanical bulls it is it is uh uh the mechanical bull is abusing his wife and it's <laughs> about her is you're like she was similarly proven right a bunch absolutely mm-hmm. the yeah. thing she put her foot down about and like i'm sorry in a lot of these cases especially if you're an actress the only way to win these arguments is to turn them into arguments. They will not listen to casual, hey, can I like throw out some ideas or notes? Mm-hmm. You have to put your fucking foot down and go, I refuse to shoot the scene this way. It also should be said that in the research I did, this director, Richard Pierce, who yeah. did Leap of Faith, maybe a little over his skis, yeah. uh, maybe in a position with big personalities that he was not able to deal with either. Yeah. And it seems as though whatever you have to say about Deborah Winger's thoughts or notes or what have you, there are a lot of directors that just don't know how to process that type of stuff and don't know how to really yeah. deal with that stuff. And that might be on the screen as well. Yeah, but I, th- I mean, just like, I she's don't... She's really good in this movie, though. Yeah. Like, I mean, despite the fact that I don't know that she's really given the best arc... No, um, she's given no art. <laughs> no, but you're well, like the yeah. better version. Of this, I mean, we're talking about like the yeah. composite character, yeah. right? Could you imagine if this movie was her playing the love interest slash antagonist, right, off of Steve Martin? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Or like if you Very make strange. this if you make this movie about like maybe you make them married and you're like their marriage right, right. is falling apart in yeah. this town. That's also a movie that gives so, her more to do. This relationship between her and Liam Neeson. Um, is like missing the scenes where it actually happens. Missing the scenes where they they actually do have pretty good chemistry. They do. Um, Liam Neeson's accent is fucking bonkers. I mean, <laughs> one of the most fascinating examples for me of a guy who's basically never been able to successfully pull off an accent that totally covers his own accent, but he does it with such confidence that we all just accept. Like, well, that's how Liam Neeson. I didn't it's have weird. I didn't have that thought once. I was just really? like I think yeah. I was just like you know what this this accent isn't quite working but it's working for me. That's my thing. You know? I I feel like there are a lot of other actors I watch where okay. and, and even major movie stars where you can feel their self-consciousness about the accent not working. That's fair. And that's what tanks the performance. Yes. And he always is just like I don't care if I don't sound like You're absolutely right any human part. being in history. No one has sounded the way I talk. But I'm just like emotionally locked into these scenes, and I'm just asking you all I'll to agree with that. Ignore it. Do you know what Liam Neeson's first credited role is on Wikipedia? No, he plays Jesus Christ. So this is this so is he's come full circle. He's in the he's in the Jesus cinematic universe now with this movie and that one. <laughs> he's it's interesting. This movie obviously comes the year before Schindler's List. Yeah, um, he conceivably goes from this set to the set of Schindler's List. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which is nuts to think about. He's also in Husbands and Wives in 92 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, whatever. But uh, in this role, which I think he does a pretty good job in, yeah. all things considered, he goes toe-to-toe with Steve Martin in some se- – like, these are two very different energies. Yes. And yet it works when it they are in scenes together. And he's very good with Deborah Winger. He's very good with Deborah But there is that problem of, like, he's standing in opposition of trying to bust Steve Martin. <laughs> but they don't have that many scenes together. Yes. And then he has this like surprising opposites attract romance with Deborah Winger. Mm-hmm. But Deborah Winger's attitude is just like, she's not as craven yeah. as the other guys on the bus, yeah. but she's also not as cynical 
as Steve Martin. She's smart enough to get what they're doing, but yeah. also isn't like, it's just sort of like, it's a job and it makes people happy where he can't really have major moral qualms with her no. and their chemistry is good, but it does feel like it skips straight from God, I'm fighting with this person, but weirdly it feels like we have good energy to we're now like super comfortable domesticated. It's, it's, I said this to you off mic before we started, but like my big issue with their relationship, with the relationship between uh, Deborah Winger and, and Liam Neeson is I don't buy for a second that she wouldn't be bored in three months and just be like, why Correct. am I living in buttfuck Kansas yes. with yes. this guy? Um, I would, I would be fine with it to be clear, but, but you would also be fine with Travis Kelsey, right? I, I would. <laughs> He's a very attractive man, is yeah. the thing. But I, I, I digress. I do think that also Kansas City is not Rustwater, Kansas. <laughs> I, I hear you. I just think that it just feels to me as though Deborah Winger's having a crisis of faith. Obviously, she's like, "Why are we doing this? This is probably bad for everybody." Um, She's fallen for this. She's very quickly aligning herself with the guy. Right. Yes. And she, he is very attractive. I get it. She's, yeah. he, and, and, and there is something very idyllic about this life that he's living in this town and all. I, I get all of that. But I also feel like every scene, like when they're fucking sitting around with butterflies or they're, you yes. know, in swinging chairs on porches, I'm just like, you're going to be bored in two yes. months. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's just a fundamental flaw for me in believing that she would ever leave this life with Steve Martin. By the way, I would believe it more with Steve Martin's character having this type of romance because, like, for a guy like this, just to have any level of, like, emotional honesty with a person would feel so intoxicating to him. Sure. He keeps everyone at such arm's length. Sure. someone got through to him in this way. Right. And he was just like, fuck, I'm like sitting on a fucking... Which is what I expected the Ev- Lita Davidovich character to right. be. Everything in this movie works if Steve Martin and Liam Neeson fall for each other. <laughs> yeah. Genuinely. Yes. If, yes. This is a, if this is a yes. queer story... I disagree. Yes. Like, I don't disagree. I mean, th- there is something... Their relationship, quite honestly, their sort of like yin and yang of yeah. the way that they see the world is quite fascinating. When yes. they are sort of at odds with each other in the tent and yes. they're like in front of an audience... Yeah battling for moral superiority if you will is a really interesting and complex thing when they finally combine the characters for broadway Mm -hmm. brooke shields played the part brooke shields played brooke shields played (laughs) marva when she was still uh just a waitress in la and then they like fired her and they brought in like a real broadway person because i was gonna say like brooke shields as the female liam neeson kind of makes sense Yeah, it kind it kind of does. Really? It kind of does. Okay. That's like the kind of person you want to play because it's right. It's that th- I mean, once again, like I do think you could put Deborah Winger in this role. There's just there were two extraneous characters basically. Yep, 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 yeah. yep. And the Deborah Winger one feels less extraneous because it is so well performed. Yeah. The the other role that's worth mentioning that Liam Neeson plays in 1982 is in a film called Shining Through, which is the Michael oh. Douglas, uh, Melanie Griffith Holocaust movie oh, where Jesus. where Liam Neeson plays a Nazi. Yeah. You have to wonder whether or not maybe Spielberg saw that and was like, Correct. this guy might be able to do this. Yeah. But but I also just feel like Liam Neeson's career – you guys obviously talked about Darkman when, mm. when you guys were doing your Raimi yeah. series. And that sort of feels like a moment where – I'm sure Hollywood noticed him, but didn't really commit to him. I mean, he had for a long time this kind of career that doesn't really exist anymore, mm-hmm. which is 
uh, movie stars used to make fewer projects. <laughs> sure, sure. Right? Like, yes. top stars were not in five movies a year and also two TV shows yeah. and also commercials or whatever. People just work a lot more now. Yeah. Because if you were on the A-list, you had to be a little protective of, like, totally. your brand and no one gives a shit about anything anymore. Um, but also, like, studios were making more mid- to low-budget-sized movies. Yep. Where you were like, look, we're going to try to offer Darkman to like Harrison Ford. If Harrison Ford wants to do it, we'll happily bump this up to a $60 million budget. But if he passes, we'll still make Darkman for 15. Mm-hmm. So who are the guys who like you can slot into Darkman at 15? Mm-hmm. And there's that like grouping of actors where you're like, oh, someone like Liam Neeson, who's been doing it for 15, 20 years, sure. probably a familiar face to audiences, has certain lean man qualities, has never been a box office draw. Mm-hmm. Is not necessarily a movie star in a conventional sense, but why not slot him in there? And then like Schindler's List gives him the gravitas. Well, yeah, I mean, then then it's then it's a whole lot of right. then I it's mean, the next phase of like he is yeah. sort of prestige actor combined with high price, bring him in to add legitimacy to your blockbuster. But now yes. he's like the elder statesman. And then, of course, has and the weirdest late career as an action hero. Yeah. I mean, it, it is the, this sort of. What's interesting too like about the exactly Darkman thing? He was at this point in time, which is he's either going to be like the lead of a movie that's a lower priority at a mm-hmm. studio, or he'll be like one of the key supporting characters. And then Spielberg makes him a movie star. Yes, yeah. It's I mean the, the Darkman thing. What's interesting too, and we've talked about this a little bit in past episodes, but like the the video store culture, mm, a yeah. movie that can make yeah. you know ten or twelve or fifteen million dollars in theaters, and then. Double yes. that when it comes out on video was a real thing. And Darkman's a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. They obviously had a bunch of straight to video sequels to it, but like that type of movie star that can be on a big screen that's enough of a draw that yeah. gets people to go to the theaters, but is also fine on a TV screen and on it's video. It's kind of like steady hand shit. They're like, this guy's like, he's just a pro. He's going to yeah. fucking cover it. We don't need to sell the movie on his name that much, but also people are comfortable with him. Totally. What's, what's interesting about this is that that slot now is increasingly taken by faith-based Christian films. Yeah. It's like they have their stars yes, and they show in movies and people go see them show in theaters. People go see them in the movie theater, but also they're on video and DVD and they can show in churches for the rest of time. And there's like the tiny level of like indie specific stars, critics, darlings, what have you within like the A24 Mm -hmm. neon realm. But like in a different timeline, yeah, Shea Wiggum would have had like five, $10 million. Absolutely. Right. Like there would have been movies that were developed as Mark Wahlberg vehicles Mm -hmm. where it's like Wahlberg dropped out. Mm -hmm. Can we do it with Shea? Yeah. It's already like moving forward. He's He's just great. Everyone likes him. Yeah. He's He's not a movie star, but he's like great on screen and people have fond feelings. But yeah, Neeson's in this like kind of weird slot at this i also think that the faith-based thing is interesting too because i think that there is kind of and faith might be a strange word to associate with liam neeson but if you look at his sort of prestige roles right Mm -hmm. they all have this kind of larger than life kind of mythic almost jesus-esque kind of characters religious man as evidenced by the fact that i've been getting served a lot of targeted ads for hallow mark Wahlberg's <laughs> prayer app oh, which liam neeson performs on oh okay yeah. sure i got it are you familiar sure. with hallow i'm not <laughs> mark Wahlberg has basically created his religious version of the calm app oh where it's guided prayers but okay. liam i can neeson see that being very successful does a lot of them 
And when He's I got w- a great voice, when I watch those ads, I'm like, you know what? I kind of want to just pay to be able to listen to Liam Neeson say shit. I, I mean, mean he, he has a foundational tragedy in his life yes, that like leads, does. and I think that leads him uh, deeper into faith. But unlike Chris Pratt, he's not like really showy about it. Yeah, I, I think Similar that like arc. if you look at but also like Aslan, like he he has yes. Sure. I mean, even if you look at. Rob Roy, Michael yeah. Collins, even Qui-Gon, yes. uh, Les Mis. I mean, these are all very sort of spiritual type characters. And Oscar Schindler feels like a biblical type character Absolutely. in For sure. the test Absolutely. that is placed I, in front of him. Of course. Yes. I really went all in on him winning an Oscar for silence, and then he's barely in it. He's so good at it. <laughs> I agree. I, and even when I saw he his part was smaller than I imagined – I was like, well, easiest walk to a nomination ever. Mm-hmm. Part of it's probably that that movie is just too challenging for people. Mm. But that comes out at like when he's still kind of top value as an action star. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how are people not doing cartwheels over the fact that he went back yeah. and did his old shit? Yeah. And at like almost arguably a greater depth than he'd ever done before. He's amazing in that movie. I also surprisingly, I'm a little surprised he hasn't worked with Nolan again. Like, he does yeah. seem like a guy that Nolan, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. when he shows up in Batman Begins, you're like, yes, that makes sense. And he just kind of never does uh, again. Nolan found Kenneth Branagh. And now it's like, that's like, you know. He thinking, found his other accent guy? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, fair but enough. there's also, like, he, he, as much as now the quality of his action movies has really dipped. <laughs> yes. And they feel like they're all made through, like, weird, shady money laundering, foreign financing and whatever. Yeah. And it's just kind of like... Well, whatever's mm-hmm. willing to meet his quote, he will sign up sure, to sure. and hold a gun on a poster. It's not like he has abandoned making other types of movies. No. He still does, like, I'll do a serious, like, indie. Mm-hmm. I'll, like, take a supporting role in a drama. Sure. But it, it doesn't – I don't know. I'm, like, waiting for him to have his final stage of, like – I think he will. Yeah. I also – his episode of Atlanta is incredible. When he showed yes. up in Atlanta as just a crawling inside himself based on – obviously the the controversy that sort of spiraled yes. around him was fascinating in and of itself yes um you know also you know his his uh episode of extras like he's incredible. able to take the piss out of himself yes. as well he's great in widows i mean like incredible in widows here's the thing we should fucking just acknowledge the movie that would kind of reset his career mm. Not that it would lead to the types of parts we're saying we want to see him sure. do more of, but like what he actually needs to reframe himself within Hollywood mm. is fucking Naked Gun, yeah. <laughs> which he keeps on being like, I don't know, it's risky, I don't know if I should do it. Do it. But like, no, but you know it's like a thing on the runway. Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. Seth MacFarlane, who has worked with him a couple times. <laughs> I mean, this sounds great. It produced sounds amazing. Here, and fucking Akiva Schaefer. Oh, wow. Writing and directing. Yeah, he should just do that. Yes. I would also argue, what has he got to lose at this Nothing. point? <laughs> like, and the other part of this is you're like, Frank Drebin is riffing on the cop procedural shows of the time. Yes, yes. If you were to update Naked Gun today, mm-hmm. it would have to be riffing on the Europa Corp. Liam right, Neeson right, 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 right. Like, that's the model now. And Liam Neeson, anytime he is given silly dialogue in a comedy... And people just have him say it very seriously. <laughs> he's, he's Fucking Leslie funny. Nielsen style. It's funny. Yeah. I watched Ted 2 for the first time recently. Never saw Ted 2. So embarrassing. It took me that long to catch up. For the TV show? Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Which then I 
I mean, in a way that really speaks to the current state of my mental health, watched all of. Do you know I, the first episode of the TED TV show is 50 minutes long? I did know that because I watched uh, the football game that immediately preceded it because, of course, I'm married to Travis Kelsey as well. Right, of course. Yeah. And like, I was like, and it was like, now stay tuned for the debut of TED. And I had lost my remote. I was like turning my office over. Yeah. And so I watched the first like two minutes and I hit pause and I was like, this is 50? Yeah. Never went back. Yeah, instantly. Um, <laughs> I've, I've not watched it. So he's like. got a bit in Ted 2. <laughs> Ted or Liam? Liam Neeson in Ted Okay, okay. I, I feel no need to stand yeah, no, yeah, no. the comedy chops of Ted the Bear. <laughs> this is purely a Liam Neeson shout out. He's got a scene in Ted 2 where Ted, of course, works at a grocery store. Sure. And Liam Neeson comes to the checkout. Mm-hmm like holding something inside his leather jacket, like it's a gun uh-huh. and then like sort of like looks like both ways and puts a box of tricks on the counter and just does the bit of like, will you let me buy this cereal? <laughs> I know I am not a kid and I have heard tricks are for kids. That sounds good. But sounds does it good. like the stakes are like, are you going to let me leave this supermarket alive? <laughs> am I going to be apprehended for trying to buy that? And I'm just like, give me, 80 minutes of this. It sounds great. I'm I'm in. Yes. I'm not to watch Ted 2, but uh but for Liam Neeson to do naked. You can watch the full Ted series. You, you got to know. No, I'm good. Gotta. I'm all right. It's a I- brisk 15. This <laughs> 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 is like weirdly like half family dramedy. Um here's another thing I find interesting about this movie. Yeah. Uh someone in the blank check subreddit the other day. Yeah. Uh said started a thread that was can you explain to me what the boys mean when they refer to something as a genre film? And their their question was, I hear them throw that term out a lot, but how is any movie not a genre movie? Their argument was, every film slots into some type of genre. Sure. And the answer is, it's basically an antiquated term now, because we rarely get movies that aren't genre films, or don't right. fit into some sort of ersatz genre that we've now like retrofitted, sure. like indie drama or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but the reason that term exists is because studio movies used to be like this. Yep. Like yeah. Leap of Faith is the example of why other films are called genre movies <laughs> because this is unclassifiable. 100%. And, and you used to get a lot of movies that were like high level people making a film that's sort of six things at the same time. I mean, we've covered a lot of them in 92. It's, right. uh, it's a wild time. <laughs> right. It's and it's, time. no one was like, oh, tonal messiness. Yeah. There was this feeling of like, well, genre movies are B pictures. They're the bonus film you get with your right. ticket. And that's an easy, cheap sell of, it's a monster movie. Mm-hmm. It's a slapstick comedy. Mm-hmm. It's a musical, whatever it is. But there used to be these kinds of movies where you're like, it's a like, dramedy romance ideas film yeah i mean this is this is sort of a perfect example of you know we've talked a fair amount about this kind of weird slipstream that 92 exists and before you know hollywood becomes fully indoctrinated into franchises and what have you and genres that you're talking about but it it, where you know this movie cost 20 million dollars to make yeah which now is probably 50 let's just say which which still is not a crazy amount of money all things considered it's also like 
Um, in terms of the movies released in 92, how this looks, it's mid. It's so gorgeous. It's so it, beautiful. Yeah, it it's looks great. It looks like, great. Oh, we didn't know how good we had it. We really didn't. I mean, it, it is – I was looking at it from a production perspective, kind yeah. of put my those goggles on for, for a moment and just thought about how much takes place in that tent, as we've talked about. Yes. So it's really kind of a one-location movie. another reason I think they thought it could be a stage show. Yes. Yeah. So much yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, but it's it's all location work. It, uh-huh. There's no soundstage work whatsoever, yeah. at least from what I could glean. It, it's you know it's just it's a movie for adults it it's, is it's not for kids These sort of like full course meal movies where they're yes. like we're giving you a, a a course of everything you know totally. like ghost is like for how successful ghost well, is yeah sure that's a movie where like you could ask 10 different people what genre is that and they'd give you different answers mm-hmm. it is simultaneously like a comedy supernatural supernatural drama romance thriller yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, but Ghost is, I mean, Ghost is an example of a movie that shouldn't work. Correct. And yet somehow just hits all of the erogenous zones that people want. swing than most. Yes. But still, most studio movies at this time, especially like A-list star vehicles, mm-hmm. yep. were three or four things at the same time in a way that sort of avoided classification. Absolutely. And made genre films feel like, well, those are kind of simpler things. Absolutely. If a movie's only trying to do one thing, on a base level, that's a genre movie. And that's why it was thought of as a reductive term. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... So, I, as I was watching this, I had to ask myself, Steve Martin, hot? Yeah. yeah. Sexy? Mm-hmm. Um, Sexy's an interesting... Because there's a moment in this movie where Steve Martin is jogging in a crop top and a cowboy hat... And I'm like, I don't know what we're doing here. You get some Steve Martin chest in this. Yeah. And some, like, midriff. Yeah. I th- I think he is undeniably very sort of underrated as a deeply handsome movie star. Sure. Yeah. Do do you think he looks too much like my terrible father for me to be like <laughs> I'm I'm I think this guy's hot, but if our listeners could have seen the look that I just gave. I will say people often said that my terrible father was attractive, so I, I, okay. I, I put it this way too. I would say he is bizarrely conventionally handsome for a comedy star yes. without feeling like he's a pretty boy yeah. you know where like someone like yeah. Chevy Chase the appeal was like oh my god he looks yeah. like that and he does comedy sure which then you know sours completely or whatever. <laughs> yeah I think I think like young Steve Martin he's kind of I like get sneaky it. hot and then without ever feeling like he was relying on it that's the other right. thing yeah he was he never is, yeah. doing aren't i cute aren't i charming shit. he is hot in like i think he's i think la story which yes. again i haven't rewatched relatively recently but like kind of hits that right on the nose right which is that's kind of an overtly sexy comedy sure. at times and it works for him yeah and it also has this kind of almost surreal mystical kind of component to it that allows for a little bit of rope for him to play mm-hmm. i i think yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying he's not hot. In yeah. this movie, I don't know if he's hitting all the the erogenous zones. If no, you know. and I do think not not to trigger anything, Emily, but I do think an, <laughs> an aspect of his hotness is his like dad status. Mm-hmm. Sure, I sure, sure. I think there's something to like how sort of non-threatening, domesticated, right, right. You know, like there's something. A big, yeah, a big late 80s thing for him is as like where he might get awards attention is um, Roxanne. Yes. Oh, which right, is very right, right, much right. like saying, oh, now he's ugly. And you're right. like, was he hot before? And you're like, he kind of was actually. Right. Yeah. But versus like so many of. Like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I think he's supposed to be hot in that, right? Kind of. 
kind of, but like, but he's also supposed to be like uh, unseemly in that. But isn't that supposed to be kind of hot? Yeah, I'm just saying he successfully transitions to being a comedy star who 100% feels like he's part of the establishment. (laughs) Yes. While other guys are still doing the sort of like too smart for the room, Mm -hmm. I'm fucking with authority figures, whatever thing. Right. There's something so like, my sister would sort of use this term about like actors she had a crush on where she was like, he'd look good in sweaters, Mm -hmm. which speaks to her taste. Sure. Well, but Steve Martin is in a Nancy Myers movie. So yes. Like, he does have, and I don't say that to say, like, he, you know, isn't. No, and the Father of the Bride right? movies like, are, are Nancy, movies. Like, Nancy uh, Shire movies. Yeah. Warm kind of quality to him. As we said, he's not dangerous. Right? I, like, you know. I briefly pitched a uh, site for online pornography. Oh. Uh, that I didn't actually pitch this. This was a joke I had for okay. supper. It was called sweatersoff.com, which is just like <laughs> yeah. people in winter wear in like warm cabins sure. and yes. then like slowly removing the winter wear and Steve Martin perfectly yeah. would fit on sweatersoff.com. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, and he's yeah, uh sure. Um I, I <laughs> Steve is daddy. I, I, I there's Steve is daddy. I want to ask uh this is more maybe specifically to you Emily, but there there's this moment when Jonas, the Steve Martin character, mm-hmm. kind of has a crisis of conscience or what have you and he sort of yells at jesus up on the cross mm-hmm. and he says why'd you make so many suckers mm-hmm. this is after lucas haas this is after yeah, lucas right. haas, which yeah. which i thought was a really i mean i the idea of like steve martin yelling at jesus yeah. isn't is fine whatever but like that question this idea of sort of huckster religion organized religion all that kind of stuff i think it's interesting that the movie goes there right that it tries yeah, to yeah. be a kind of you know. I'm interested in how that intersects with how Hollywood traditionally treats right. Christians, yeah. which is, you know, um, now I the big project that Libby and I broke through on is specifically about evangelical Christian America. Like we, that's what mm-hmm. got hired, us hired on Yellow Jackets. We've almost had that made like 15 times, and then someone realizes it's about religion right. and specifically treats religion seriously, right, and right. they're like, "No, we're not going to do this." Is the attitude almost like this will piss both sides off? It religious crowds will think this is a little too tough for them. Yeah. And people who aren't religious will write it off as a faith-based film. Because it's about queer Christians. Right. And everyone's like, what the fuck do we do with that? So I think – but one of the things I take – have always taken is The Leftovers, the HBO show. Sure. I did an interview with them once where they were A lot of Linda Loft's work. Our biggest audience is actually evangelical, young evangelicals who are like, we want to see stuff that is talking about these ideas. Mm. In a challenging way. In a challenging way. We don't need it to be – you know, explicitly faith-based, but I think that uh, the only way that gets made is Lindelof has a blank check at HBO to sure. get that that thing made. I think that like this movie was embraced by evangelicals to some extent because it is interested in like this guy confronting that question. And Which coming, the whole second half of the movie should be about rather exactly. than the last and minutes. coming away from it in a way where he like sort of respects people's faith even if he doesn't share it ultimately. Like I do think like one of the things that trips Hollywood up when it makes movies about any religious tradition because yeah. I think all everyone who works here like I'm Episcopalian, which is the most secular Christian you can possibly be, but like it's still nominally Christian, and like. The th- the thing that Hollywood gets Hollywood tripped up is we all are kind of like, well, nobody actually believes this, right? Like this right. isn't like a thing that right. people organize their life around. And Leap of Faith is, I think, a little cynical about it, but does deep down think these people believe all of this yeah. and this guy is taking advantage of that and there's something wrong with that. Well, and what I, what I do think is interesting about this movie and why the Lucas Haas 
walking needs to be the halfway point is that that's the most interesting idea is like him seeing this kid who's the kind of like, fuck, this guy gets me in trouble because he's got an actual condition I can't ail. And then Lilia Davidovich tells him, no, it's psychosomatic. Every doctor has been completely confounded by this. No one could get through to him. And he gets through in a way that is pointedly not a miracle, but certainly plays as a miracle to everyone else. He knows that what he did was not supernatural because he knows what she's told him about him. Sure. But suddenly he looks more real to everyone else. He's given this kid who does believe that he truly had a physical condition up until this moment, like a reaffirmation of everything he believed in. And Martin has to uh, kind of reckon with, is there actually a positive good to what I'm doing? Which is what scares this guy the most, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm just tricking people and running off with their money, whatever, they're rubes, they want to believe this stuff. They do believe this stuff. I give them a good show. I give them a good show and I don't really do anything to like lead them astray. I'm sort of playing into what they already believe. Yeah. But he's like, there's actually some power in the show I've put on removing some block in this kid that let him believe that he could suddenly walk again, which is what no traditional doctor or psychiatrist was able to do. Yep. And the thing I realized watching this and, and like Mencken being so fixed on trying to make a musical out of this, <laughs> it is interesting that around the same time, I feel like this is what in a very different form Book of Mormon is doing as a show. Yes. Which is like, hmm. make a show that's basically act one. This is all dumb. This is cynical. Sure. This is like people trying to cover their ass or like find some sort of like career success for themselves. And it gets out of hand. Yeah. They lose control of the narrative. And then they ultimately come to realize like, it actually doesn't matter whether or not any of this is real or whether or not these people actually even believe it's real. They're buying what you're selling because they need some system to believe in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like, there is power in that, even if it's coming from a cynical place. Weirdly. I think that the movie, it's interesting. It's grappling with these ideas. Yes, absolutely. I'm thinking about, uh, as we were talking about obscure evangelical Christian figures, I was thinking about the guy, a guy named Mike Warnke, mm-hmm. who I think this movie, he's exposed in 92. So that, this okay. movie could not be based on him, but I think would be an interesting figure for a Steve Martin to play. Basically, he is a stand-up comedian, a okay. Christian stand-up comedian who do- goes up and does 30 minutes of material. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I'm going to talk for 15 minutes about how I was a Satanist and I sacrificed a bunch of children. And like, that's the like last 15 minutes. Jesus, hey. And he made all of that up. And like, that was like, okay. he made up this entire story about how he was seduced into Satanism and rose through the ranks of the church and blah, blah, blah. And was like interviewed on 2020 and about this point of that narrative the like anyone can be saved. Yeah. Basically of, okay. he's like, and Jesus found me and gave me the path forward. And like he, his, so he just tried to create the most dramatic stakes yeah. from what he was. Exactly. And okay. his claims got more and more extravagant. And he's finally exposed in 1992, but like Steve Martin playing that guy, the yeah. guy who's funny. And then See, it's like, that's I got a level with you about all the times that I was involved in ritualistic sacrifice. <laughs> this is the thing. I'm kind of would, obsessed would that. 
with movies like this where you watch them and you're like, God, I'm imagining the 15 better versions of this mm-hmm. I could yep. watch. Yep. And they're all different. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? You're like, this movie isn't committing to one thing coherently, yep. but it has the pieces of so many different versions of this story. It really does. I mean, I, I'll say that 20 minutes into this movie, I was like, all right, is this a, is this a, a masterpiece that yes. no one knows about? Because I genuinely, we talked about sort of that that yeah. opening scene where you've got like the cop and him sort of piecing together the cop's story and playing the cop, coming into the small town. I've got Meatloaf and Philip Seymour Hoffman on the bus. That's like I'm just like, sweet. yeah, it's just like, it's like this is is this gonna be face. great? Yeah. And then it just slowly but surely kind of loses the thread a little bit. I think it's most interesting at the and very. I think it's most interesting in the last fifteen yeah. minutes. It's I, very strange. Um, another thing that's interesting about Mike Warnke that I think a lot of these movies miss is like he was exposed by a Christian publication. Like, the people who brought him oh, down were Christians. Yeah. And that's what it happens in a lot of these stories. Yeah. Right. It's they, there was like a robust evangelical journalism scene at that time that was like. Taken and that doesn't exist anymore. But I gotta say, when I was when this movie came out, my comedy Mount Rushmore was Robin Williams, Mike Warnke, and Jim Varney with like a fourth face <laughs> to be filled in later. Yeah. So when are you making your uh, evangelist <laughs> journalist movie? Is the real question. I should do that. I yeah. mean, that's. A, I mean, I just I what I think is interesting about that too is the idea of putting people under a microscope mm-hmm. in what is entirely like it's not. Forgive me, but not fact based. Like, how do you, how do you grapple with that? Well, I mean, it was his stories were so obviously fake that they very easily fair, tore fair them enough. down. It was fair, like fair. very much like it is this thing of like they there was a sort of robust fact checking. We don't want anybody to be taken advantage of, and yeah. there's a lot of scam artists, like and a defensive. Yeah, we can't fall for another one of these guys. Yeah, yeah, self policing. Um, I'd like to rate this film because uh, I'd love to get your thoughts so on <laughs> on what we're covering next week, Griffin. Okay. I do land on, I would say, I like this movie. Me I too. do too. But I'm like, I don't, I, I can't think of how to rate it that isn't either giving it too much credit or being too hard on it. Yeah, I mean, so I came into this yeah. at a 70. Mm, yeah. Too high. And <laughs> But then also I'm like also 60 I'm like, feels too low. This is, so I kind of I can't so I came in at a 70. I'm just like I'm going to be generous and say 70. Yeah. And I agree that that's probably a little too generous. It's probably a 65. It's probably where I'm going to land. But that's that's where I I'm use going. the term gentleman 6 a lot on I blank do, check. I do. Yeah. And that for me is a movie that is like <laughs> doing an okay job with very low ambitions. Like you just kind of give it the bump of like, you know what? Why not? It's not hurting anybody. <laughs> But it's hard for a movie like this to be a gentleman six because you're seeing so aspirations, yes, and the things you wish it was doing. Yes, yes. But then I'm also like, well, you can't give it a seven for ambition. <laughs> yeah, I think it is like a sixty-five. Yeah. I think it's a yeah. six point five. Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably where it's at. Uh, yeah. I, when I saw this in 1995 or whenever, I probably mm-hmm. would have given it a seventy-five. I quite liked sure, it. Sure. I was not like in love with it but i quite liked it uh watching it now i was like there's a lot of i it's a movie i'm fascinated by as a writer because i was like i have yes 15 yeah. different things <laughs> i would like to do with this premise i, I would yeah. love to rewrite oh, yeah. the other thing i thought about here is i think a smart thing the musical does is introduces a different religious family that like mm, believes yeah. sincerely like as a counterpoint I, this movie could have done that anyway i'm gonna give it a 62 okay uh okay. on the queer phobia scale i'm gonna oh, give yeah. it like a four because there is one joke about uh men wearing pantyhose being crazy and i was like oh, sure. uh, unacceptable that's not, that's not cool <laughs> i think the rest of it's actually kind of fine but <laughs> or as weird as it is that alan menken latched onto this you also see that kind of thing of like 
it less often works when you make a musical out of a thing that everyone loves that already yep. existed in a perfect form. Yep. Right. Like compared to the ghost musical, which was also like they did a ghost musical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that <laughs> Devane Joy Flopped. Randolph won the Tony for it was nominated for. That was her breakthrough. Really? Mm-hmm. Was playing the whoopee part in Ghost mm-hmm. on Broadway. Oh, I think it was okay. big in London and it was really hyped up, very similar to the Rocky musical. And it was very expensive and came to New York and like just absolutely that, wiped out. The Rocky musical, conceptually really fascinating. Yes. Like how they staged it. You've got to watch some but clips. All these of it. things yeah. where you're like, that's not the version of the story that the people who like this movie want to see. Can I ask? Here's a question. Yeah. What is the brass ring? Because. Um, in terms of making a movie into a musical, what is the 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 goal? Because I'm I hear of all of these yeah. being done, right? You know, your Beetlejuices, your what have yous, and I'm like, what are you striving for? The, so um, the problem Hollywood has with IP, yeah. uh, Broadway had that in the 2000s. I, like I that's it. just it's just you can only get some, and like sometimes they're quite good. Like the 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 musical about the aforementioned Gentleman Ghost is quite a good show, but like okay. you know, but it's, but I think like. It, you look more often the successes are the things like kinky boots over the yes, ground. Right, exactly. Right. Where it's either like, or the band's visit, you know, which was right. like a fucking like Oscar foreign film shortlist movie from 15 or it's years like, earlier. Or like what probably going to end up being the biggest show of all time, the Lion King, which right. radically reimagines. Well, yes, but thing. the Disney ones were sort were of different. Yeah. Right. They figured out basically the event horizon of like how to build the movies so they would transfer to Broadway perfectly, right. and then you bring someone in to like reinterpret it as a production, but like right. narratively, musically, so they're it becomes just its like own thing. Clean yeah. placement, right? The, the biggest non-Disney movie adaptation on Broadway by far is Hairspray, which is like really? a really like cool. uh, uh, Hairspray and the producers are yeah. where it's like, oh, we can oh. we can do this, and both of those are already musical adjacent. Yes, the, yeah. the film version. I think so. that's a big part of it, but I think also like there are things where you're like. Oh, there's like Promises, Promises, which gets like revived every 15 or 20 years and is a pretty good Burt Bacharach musical version of The Apartment. Yeah. And you're like, it doesn't crumble under the shadow (laughs) of The Apartment, but Uh it also doesn't surpass it. And everyone's like, this is kind of fun. And I feel like there were a lot of Broadway shows until the 2000s that were like that, where they're like, let's use the bones of this for a musical. Sure. And it does okay, but the original movie's the definitive text. And then in the 90s and 2000s, 2000s especially, they start being like, we're making a musical with the same name and coasting off the iconography, uh-huh. and it's Mrs. Doubtfire singing, and whatever it is, and it rarely works. And the best examples are the things like Kinky Boots or Band's Visit, where you're like, this movie is actually, people don't know it. Uh, it's yeah. based on a movie, but there aren't wide, like mainstream public expectations uh-huh. or the sort of salvation project of does leap of faith have good bones like could we gut reno this yeah. and turn it into something <laughs> that works and you watch the movie and i keep on like scene to scene i'm watching it with the mind of like an interior designer in that way where i get what alan menken latched onto where you're I totally like, get it fuck if you rip the walls out and you like <laughs> if the kitchen's here not like another huge yes. another huge uh, show was once the stage show yes. once. oh right of, like, course, yeah, of course this is a this is a movie people have heard of but maybe yes. don't know and right. it's got great songs yeah but, but like 
Hades Town, one of my favorite things of all time. Huge hit show. Took them 10 years to get it to Broadway, even though everyone was like, this is clearly a Broadway show because yeah. it, people were like, what's that about? It had well, nothing. The Orpheus Eurydice, and they're like, I, I don't care. Yeah. Can you maybe do a show based on uh, a league of their own, something like that? So before we talk about. Actually, astounding that hasn't happened. Yet. I know. Before exactly. we talk about what we're covering next week, do you guys have a favorite Steve Martin movie? Um, <sighs> Honestly, it's probably Bowfinger. I love I love, I love I love Bowfinger. Yeah. I love Bowfinger. It feels lazy, but it also feels dishonest for me to pick anything other than the jerk. Right. Yeah. But I also think basically it's once again, it's a thing I find fascinating is like he is the rare comedy star mm-hmm. who has actually had several successful reinventions of his comedic persona. Right. 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 Most comedians either kind of keep doing the same thing, diminishing returns, Mm -hmm. or they take a left turn into drama or into action or whatever the fuck it is. Right. And he's redefined a clean sort of type of what a Steve Martin movie is Mm -hmm. where I'm like, Bowfinger is one of those. The jerk is one of those. Sure. They're 20 years apart and it's hard for me to reconcile or or just compare that. Cause I'm like, those are equally successful. Um, reflections of what his comedic persona style was at those moments. Like if I'm just talking my favorite movie that he's in, sure. It's probably little shop, which is obviously not a Steve Martin movie, but also he's so good. It's one of his best performances ever. Yeah. So that's probably my like, Holy Trinity. Sure. I mean, it's a lot. He was really good with Frank Oz. Yeah. He was. So, he was really good with Frank Oz I, and Carl Reiner, but the other Carl Reiner movies aren't as good as the second tier Oz movies. I do. I do love him in planes, trains, automobiles. I Incredible. Think I mean, yeah, I love Parenthood. I, I know that that's. Uh, but I, I, I think that's probably the Steve Martin movie I've seen the most. We sure. haven't talked at all about Pennies from Heaven, which is just worth mm-hmm. doing like two sure, sure, seconds sure, yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is like that was the time when it did feel like he was going to like. Like that's right around when Robin, Robin Williams is doing Garp, so it yeah. feels like oh, right. these guys are going to go to drama, and it doesn't work. He did, and that doesn't work for either of them. His at that point second movie, period, after the jerk, and he's talked about it of like I wanted to try to break out and not pigeonhole myself to only doing my stand-up persona in movies, and audiences rejected it, and he was like, okay, no taken, <laughs> and then just started doing different types of comedy. Yeah, but I do think that was the the first movie that got him in his head about like. I don't know if audiences want to see me stretch or go into unfamiliar genres. Anyway, it's, speaking it's, of Robin, he's good in it. No, yeah. So, um, yeah. you were originally going to come on for a film, okay? That, uh, understandably, you guys are going to cover on your podcast, which it, is the movie Toys. It, at some it point, feels like, look. I before people fucking go on our Reddit oh, yeah, and speculate, yeah. whatever. It is not a thing we have pinned on the schedule. I understand, and I'm, but, I wasn't trying to. And in a lot of ways, doing all of Levinson feels very daunting. You got to do it. You got to do it. It is <laughs> such an insane blank check movie that I feel like we cannot. You and and I, I totally understood an episode on. I it completely else. understand that, and I and when we were emailing about this, yeah. I completely understood. It's you also guys should give it its due. Our buddy JD Amato is like obsessed with that film, and. Totally understandable. Where he's once or twice a year begging us to do an episode on it. So it's never been like locked in as anything. <laughs> I, and and I but, certainly don't want to send the Reddit people off saying you're going to be doing it anytime soon. Or so. that we're definitively not. But it's or, truly just – it exists in the space where we're like – it's kind of break glass in case of emergency. It's also such a long filmography. Like Levinson yeah. would, you, it would almost, I think it would rival Burton 
in terms of length. And the, the yeah. yeah, the last uh, <laughs> basically everything in the 21st century is just like there's some interesting movies in there, but who the fuck has ever heard of Pollywood? Oh, that's mean, a documentary. You could get away. We're that. talking the other everlasting day. peace. Okay, there we go. <laughs> but then there are like ten more after that. Correct. We were we were trying to crack our March Madness bracket where we sure 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 people yeah, vote yeah. on director yeah, thirty two and do a, a vote every day and we were like <laughs> do we um, put Levinson on this? well we were weighing it very seriously and when someone's on on the bubble like that we go like okay let's just actually go through the films one by one and imagine doing this in real time and that taking however many months it takes and there are filmmakers we've covered where we're like their career's a little long and they have a bunch of movies at the beginning that don't really exist. Combine them, double them up, triple them up. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we did the first six Jonathan Demi movies as two episodes or something like that. Um, And Levinson's the weird example of you would have to do the opposite. Where you're like, gotta do sphere? (laughs) Giving all his movies their own episodes until like 1999, maybe, or 2005. And then you're like, the late ones all have to be doubled up. I like do, the, the humbling cannot be its own episode that has to be shared with Rock the Casbah. I what do feel bay? like you yeah. could, I do feel like you could cut it off at Man of the Year. That feels like the last time it felt like Barry Levinson was Barry Levinson. A, a deeply weird yes. flop. So yeah. next week, okay. we have Emma Stefanski coming on to talk about toys. Great. The great Emma Stefanski, yeah. uh, who has not seen toys, but oh, I'm wow. pretty convinced is gonna be one of her favorite movies. I could be wrong. Yeah. It seems like, or she might just be like, I hate everything about this. Yeah. We had Emma on for Cool World. Okay. And she, does she love that? <laughs> no, no. None of us did. Have you ever watched Cool World? Yeah, it's unpleasant. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, are you annoyed or a doodle, though? I gotta ask. That's a great question. I think I'm more of a doodle. I think you are more of a doodle, yeah. actually, Griffin. But No, that's a movie on paper I should love. And even for how broken it is, yes. I should love the weird, broken, it's left-handedness really of that movie. But it's, it's actually just yeah. unpleasant. It was it was the moment when uh, Libby's wife called yeah. me and said, why are you making us watch this? I don't want Emily to do this podcast anymore. It felt like a, it felt reasonable. but It really, it really did feel like I was going to be made to quit podcasting altogether. <laughs> yeah. like, as it was such a miserable experience. But Toys, yes. which is arguably one of the biggest blank check movies, right? This is, yeah. a, this is a guy who's coming off of, you know, the success of Rain Man and Bugsy. Yes. Um, big Oscar, what, what have even you. Even like side aside, size aside rather, yes. um, it is truly the kind of thing they only let you make if you have a run of seemingly the Midas touch. Correct. Where it's like, look, this pitch sounds bad. <laughs> Like, it's not just like that's more money than you are giving anyone unless they're coming off a run of hits and Oscars. Mm -hmm. It's like that thing would get noted to death. Yes. Outside outside of, fuck, well, Rain Man was the highest grossing film this year. No one thought that was commercial either. Sure. I mean, I think you're, I think also they're putting on their, their, their studio hats being like, it is about toys. Yeah. So maybe we can make toys. He's just made Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Avalon, which is not a big hit, but like but it's a, a amazing movie. Well-loved yeah. film on, on a lower level. Yeah. Bugsy, which is like, you know, not a good movie, but got a bunch of Oscar nominations. Yeah. He's like cashing in. Gotta- he is cashing in. All This is also notorious. We'll talk about this in the episode, but like this was the movie he actually wanted to do first. Yes. This is the movie that he wanted to do before Diner. Yep. And thankfully people were like, what are you talking about? Don't do that. It's a movie that looks incredible, but it's also in this uncanny valley that i tend to love movies like this where it is like too childish for adults and way too violent and cynical for kids. I love it. 
oh, I'm where you're just this like, movie. this is kind of for no one. <laughs> That's the thing about this film. It has that that quality with Cool World, except I would say it is not unpleasant in the same way as Cool World. No, no, no. But you're like, this is a movie that is alienating to everyone. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the cast is insane. You have to just be a deranged lunatic like <laughs> us to love how ill-conceived it is in that level. <laughs> it is ill-conceived on many, many levels. Yes. This is Robin Williams come. I mean, obviously we talked about Aladdin in 92. Yeah. Fern Gully, we also talked about that in 92. Um, he's, he's really kind of at a really big point in his career. He's had an Oscar nomination for, uh, for Fisher King. He's got a hook. I mean, like, he's and what, kind Doubtfire of, is 93. Doubtfire is the next year. Right. So like, he literally comes off of this turd and yeah. goes right into it. Just I'd a gigantic Doubtfire is the moment where everyone like steps back and goes like, is he actually the number one box office draw in Hollywood? Correct. Correct. Even and, with yep. his flops aside, when this guy hits, it's so fucking big. And he doesn't, you know, Jumanji's his next lead role, yes. which is obviously a big hit as well. Then the birdcage. Yes. I mean, then Jack, you know, and then things get a little no, bit bumpy. It gets a little hairy. Yeah. But, but yeah, he was in that zone where it's like, everyone likes this guy. Kids like him as much as adults. A hundred percent. He's been in the public sphere now for like 20 plus years. And Levinson uses the same approach yeah. that he has with Good Morning Vietnam, which is, I'm just going to point a camera at Robin and I'm going to yes. let him riff. Right. The difference, of course, is he's riffing about just like everything under the sun as opposed to Vietnam, where at least he's in a box to some degree. I, yes. It's, it's I saw uh, the great John Glazer, the, the comedic sure. performer and writer. I saw him do a bit once. Um, in New York. Uh, I'm trying to remember where the venue was, but whatever. It's some, you know. Sure. Uh, underground Eugene Merman hosted comedy show. When <laughs> those things were hard to sell tickets to. And he did a character who was a stand-up dream-edian. <laughs> and his bit was, well, most comedians make observational comedy about like slice of life things we've all gone through, but that's like well-picked over territory. <laughs> so I'm going to do observational comedy based on my dreams. <laughs> And the joke was, no one has any frame of reference for what he's explaining, so he would have to do, like, 90 seconds of someone poorly explaining their own dream to then set up the joke. And I'm thinking, you know, and whatever the punchline is. And Toys is kind of like that, where, it like, absolutely like, in Vietnam, you're like, well, we all understand the Vietnam War. Yep. Yeah. And here are the bones of a solid drama. Yep. And place Robin within here. Yeah. You understand the time period. You understand where he is. You understand what's going on sociopolitically. He can riff on that. Absolutely. We have like touch points. And yeah. toys is like, do observational comedy on the insane world of toys. <laughs> and we're like, we don't get what the world of toys is. <laughs> we have no idea what's going on. Uh, it's sort of a succession movie in the yes. sense of him getting his father's company. Yes. Um, it, 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 Michael Gambon playing this sort of militaristic uncle. Yes. LO Cool J playing his son. And like a movie, um. like a, a massive budget, <laughs> like basically adaptation of the style of Magritte. What? <laughs> What's the over under on me giving this a 75? I mean, I honestly think you might love this movie. I'm, like, I'm taking the over too. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it is. It's scrubbed from the internet. The only way you can watch it right now is on Stars. Uh, that's the only place wow. that it's that it's available. Rentable. It's actually, you can buy it on DVD, but never on Blu-ray, right? Never on Blu-ray. I finally bought a 4K, so Hell I'm waiting oh, for that toys 4K release. <laughs> but I honestly think that just fuck it. Like, why wouldn't 20th just put a deluxe edition of this out? Well, they make money. Say, it feels like a Shout Factory thing at this point. Sure, it feels like a weirdo label. Like someone, Arrow, whoever, yes. whatever the fuck. Yes. Anyway, we're doing toys. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask your thoughts on it. You saw it as a kid. You didn't see it as a kid. I saw it 
on TV as a child a couple years after it came out. I definitely didn't see it in theaters. Did you play the video game? I didn't. <laughs> but I remember just constantly... We the I'm trying to think what channel it would have played on. But there was some cable channel that for a year maybe had it in regular rotation. Maybe like Fox, whatever it's called, because it's... I don't know. I don't know but what it is. Yeah. Like for whatever year we got cable, I was just then obsessed with watching cable television sure. all the time. And I had this weird relationship to the movies that played in cable constantly that I assumed they're playing because they're classics. <laughs> I didn't understand. It's like because this movie make was their money cheap. And... <laughs> It was cheap to license and the studio was trying to make their money back or whatever. So like there's a group of movies that I all kind of put together of like Return to Oz, The Wiz. She loves Return to Oz. Toys. All these movies that feel like children's movies that upset children (laughs) and were kind of neither fish nor fowl Uh and often had like really interesting adult directors and filmmakers behind them, but were in this uncanny valley. And to me, all of them were like, well, this is like Mary Poppins levels. These are like the canonical classics. Mm-hmm. The difference with toys was I could tell it was more recent. Sure. It was not a movie that had predated me uh-huh. where I would just watch the Wiz and assume like this is everyone's favorite movie of all time. It's as sure. beloved as the Wizard of Oz. Right. Um, and I remember just every time toys would come on, ask my parents like, so like, what's the read on this movie? <laughs> like truly, even though I was a kid, I would like be like, so do people like, do they like was this movie yeah. liked was this movie popular yeah i could tell there was something weird about how big it was mm-hmm. in relation to how weird it was mm-hmm. and how little it existed relative to other robin williams movies it was uh, my first encounter with the term bad buzz <laughs> sure. i read an article <laughs> yes. about movies with bad buzz in the argus leader of sioux falls south dakota which uh, i read and was like now i know a hollywood term yeah uh, and they were like, Toys has bad buzz. This was like November 1992. <laughs> yeah. Phil, my point, should I buy you this Japanese toys poster? Because I, I kind of want to. Yes, yes yeah. is the answer. I would I, I would frame that and put it on my wall. I, I've not so, seen it in a very long time, but it's probably a movie I watched 10 times on television. I, so do you remember the teaser yes. for this? Yes, oh, of course. The teaser is famous yes. because – it's just Robin Williams in that weird green field, the teaser, just riffing. The teaser is why Fox greenlit the movie at that budget. Because they were like, well, if you just put this out, it'll work. It doesn't matter. It's, it, Audiences we, will go see this. You should watch the teaser at some point, Emily. I'm sure it's I've up on YouTube. It oh, you have. It, it is it, – I remember vividly seeing yeah. the teaser and being like, yeah, no, I mean, I'm in. Robin can sell audiences on anything. So I was – and then I saw it in the theater yes. in 92. Yes. And I remember – Really liking it. Yeah. I bought the soundtrack. Wow. Tori Amos. Yeah. I remember <laughs> like the soundtrack ripping. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's just anyway, we're gonna do toys. It, I can't wait to I, hear what I, Emma I and, and Emily have to say about it. I, I'll say this. I haven't rewatched it in a long sure. time. I do think it is kind of <laughs> unquestionably one of the great art direction movies ever made. Yeah. If like, especially if you're considering like most art direction, and it didn't even get nominated. No, but I think that because it speaks to how much people were angry about that movie. <laughs> it did receive a nomination for art direction. Oh, it did. Oh, it did. Lost, okay, it lost the Howard's yeah. End. I was gonna say oh. it, it's kind it's of okay. undeniable on that level. Yeah. Yes, uh, especially just the scale and the execution of what they're doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's. I mean, David has uh, given it two and a half stars on his letterbox. Okay. So my guess okay. is that David's not a big fan. Yeah, <laughs> but. But someday I'm I'm very excited for you guys to whenever it might very well be sure. uh, to talk about it. But it's also you know. fascinating that that 
movie is the cornerstone of Robin Williams falling out with Disney. Because yes, the whole well, Aladdin thing, yes, 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 yes. Don't put my name on the poster. Don't yep. sell it on my name. Yep. Don't because sell the he was character. all in on toys. And he was like, I don't want you to sabotage toys. <laughs> God bless. God bless Robin Williams for wanting toys to, to no, perform. He was like, but, look, if I'm having two movies released in the same can- calendar year. It's just a picture here. And there's two guys in a cart. And this is duck crossing. Correct. Just look and at how insane Just, w- just wait. Because there's little ducks that cross. Oh, my God. <laughs> Five stars. Five stars. I, I, bet, I bet you're imagining like organic ducks. <laughs> no, 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 no. Wind up toy ducks. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, it is. A, it's one of those films that because I feel like yeah. when you guys landed on the idea of blank check, mm-hmm. right? There's a handful. You're about to cover one of them. Uh, Last Action Hero, which yes. I feel like is yes. is kind of one of those. Yeah, I do love check. that movie. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? I like, basically, come around to fully loving that movie. So it does. Yeah. It is interesting that like I understand the reticence to cover all of Levinson's films wholeheartedly. I think it might break David, check, but it was curated my year of flop style, which is right. you just cover toys the would be in the top three probably. You would top have five. done yeah. it yeah. in the first month of doing. That. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. it's a case where the format of our show kind of plays against it. Hundred percent. I completely understand it. Um, but it is. Uh, I just. It is one of those very odd movies. Yes. The fact that it's also kind of a movie that doesn't exist. It's kind yeah. of forgotten. Yes. You can't even really buy it or watch it. No. It's just like weird, it's, like anti-war screed. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta see this thing. I'm so glad. I'm gonna make my wife watch it tonight. She's gonna be so mad. So mad at you. But yeah, it's, it really is a, a fascinating thing. I watched a little bit of the video game last night on YouTube just out of curiosity. And it's, I mean, it's, it's the video game that you would expect, except it's, you are Robin Williams and you're like pooping out ducks. Sure. How have I not seen this? Final point on this. Final point on this, because I want you to text me after you see the movie with this prompt, okay? Because in that grouping of movies I'm talking about, there are the scenes that were, like, burned into my memory, scarred me deeply. In Return to Oz, it's uh, the witch with the room full of of all the heads, right? In The Wiz, it's weirdly the subway performers with the paper Mm -hmm, puppets mm -hmm, that get bigger mm -hmm. and bigger and start chasing them. Mm -hmm. There is that kind of weird, it is very cartoonish, and stylized, but there is like a, a a sequence of imagery in toys that I would say is not the most extreme thing that is depicted in toys by any measure. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if Phil thinks he knows which one it is. It comes late. Okay. That like similarly just deeply upset me as a child, and I still think of it with like great okay. discomfort. Okay. I'm curious as to what it is. You can text me. Let I will. me know. But uh, when you watch the movie, I want to see I will. Yeah. if you I can will. identify it and if you have the same response. I will. I'm so what was we watched something relatively recently that I thought you that you really liked and then you just got exhausted by and I'm trying to remember what that film was do you remember what it was I'll I'll look it up because I feel like it made me wonder we watched it wasn't delicatessen it was I think stay tuned stay tuned fuck out (laughs) yeah stay tuned was the movie that I feel like you, I was like, I think Emily's going to love this. And then by the end, you're just like, I can't do this anymore. Yes. I can't I, yeah, this. I do, It's I, just yeah. too much. Yeah. Toys, I think, I'm, I'm hopeful for toys. Yeah, I'm hopeful Griffin, yes. will you tell our listeners about your podcast? Uh, it's called Blind Check with Griffin David. We haven't done an episode on toys, and there's no <laughs> toys episode locked in the book. I had heard that the, the Levinson miniseries is starting in August, <laughs> and everyone on the Reddit should like yes, absolutely yeah. harangue us about it. I genuinely can't remember whether or not we did end up putting him on March Madness, but it was like an intense 
Vote Levinson. I, I want to go on and talk about some movie nobody remembers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, I'm actually a bit of a Levinson stan. Like, I would, I would ride for some of his movies, but he's so got, got to go on for the humble Jimmy Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of weird movies in that filmography for there's sure. There's a lot of weird ones. It's, and and we, a lot of Baltimore. You know what? Hmm. Did he, did he make it? I think he made the cut. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want a toys episode, <laughs> this is your way. Go out to the polls. <laughs> stay in line. So you, your podcast is Blank Check with Griffin and David. You also have a Patreon, correct? We do. Yeah. Patreon, we do more franchises, film series, main feed. We do directors who have uh, Blank Check careers, and we cover their whole filmography one film at a time. So we're starting up John McTiernan now, and on Patreon, we're doing the Terminator movies. Um, I, I, a perfect, they just totally knew how to sequelize that movie. It really time. did. It, it really, uh, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Yes. This is just a Barry Levinson movie I pulled up at random. The mm. plot involves two Whig salesmen, yes. one Catholic Everlasting and one piece. Protestant, yeah. who live in war-torn <laughs> Belfast, Northern Ireland. Emily, this movie was like a pre-blacklist, blacklist script. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Where everyone was like, you can't believe how good this fucking script is. Every reader in yeah. Hollywood was doing backflips about it. It and was post-Wag the Dog. Yes. And it's like early DreamWorks, mm-hmm. and it's like Fair. Barry Levinson is the director who won the battle of who gets to make Everlasting Peace, and he's decided to cast two good character actors and not movie stars, and they gave it a prime, like, holiday season, sure, Oscar sure. heavyweight. December 25th. Yeah. yeah. And just it, like nothing. Doesn't no one cares. I, I do think, and this will be the last thing I say about Barry Levinson, I, I do think he has a an oddly flexible career in the sense that like he actually can do a lot of things he has more range than you would expect on paper that quality makes him a good candidate for a podcast because it's not seeing yes the problem is you need to remove like eight movies <laughs> like I, I agree it would be interesting if he only made one example of each type of bad movie <laughs> Where in fact, like yeah. most mistakes he made two or three times, he, he made a lot of TV types of mistakes. Yeah, at a certain point, it became he became like a go-to yes. HBO films guy. He if, did a lot of those. If, and, yeah. Like his last eight films were removed and replaced with his yeah. last two HBO movies, you'd be, he'd yeah. be a no-brainer. Yeah, he just he really went long. He just yes. kept going, and he's still doing it. Yeah. I mean, more power to him, I yeah. guess. Griffin, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely yeah. appreciate it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just saying, always great to see you. Always great. <laughs> Yeah.